You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You think crows are scared of a scarecrow? Crows are laughing. Crows are laughing. That's right. Crows fly by, they see that, makes them laugh. Behold, the captains of industry, the prospective owners of Maxie's Car Wash, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Maybe Maxie's Car Wash. Car Wash. Yeah. Okay. For every car, there is dirt. Max and Lion. The only difference between them and the Rockefellers is a few hundred million dollars and about 1,500 miles. First off, there's Max. I've got to tell you something about me. I'm the meanest son alive, you know what I mean? Yeah? I don't trust anybody. I don't love anybody. <laughs> hey, we're going to be partners, okay? Okay? All right. Come on. Max did six years in prison for beating the hell out of a guy, and it didn't teach him a thing. Okay. All right. No, Max. Just one way. Max, one way. Get out. Believe it or not, Max is the brains of the partnership. Oh, all of me. Plastic pipe for durability. $600. And then there's Lion. I think your specialty is going to be waxing. Waxing? Waxing. No, no, and um, keeping the customers happy. Lion figures mm-hmm. if you can make somebody laugh, you won't ever need to fight. Why did you call? Stupid girl. Oh, Get out of here. Hey, Max! Hey, Max! Lion is a scarecrow. That's right. Who's laughing? No, you don't have to hit people. Not if you make them laugh. No, crows are not scared, believe me. The crows are scared. No. And the, uh, uh... Crows are laughing. Crows are laughing, right. You know, in a joint, I heard some tales, man. Oh, boy, howdy. I, I, I heard some tall tales. Uh, I mean, uh, you're not playing with a full deck, man. It's been five years. You know, your wife might be married. She might have moved away. Why don't you give her a call? Look, I want to see my kid, right? What am I going to do, shove the lamp? Through the phone? Sure, sure. Send the money and see the world. Annie, please. Look, let me come over. I don't want to see you. Max and Lion, the prospective owners of Maxie's Car Wash. All they have to do is get to Pittsburgh. But between California and Pennsylvania, there are a lot of ups. Ah! Drinks on the house for everybody! And a lot of downs. Max and Lion, the future owners of Maxie's Car Wash, Pittsburgh, PA. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Glad to be back, you cute little motor scooter. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Jamie Duvall. Thank you for inviting me back. This week we are discussing the 1973 film from Jerry Schatzberg, Scarecrow. Based on a screenplay by Gary Michael White, no relation, the film stars Gene Hackman and Al Pacino as two drifters who become uneasy friends who crossed the country to Pittsburgh with a planned stop in Detroit. 
Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode. So if you haven't seen Scarecrow before, please turn off the podcast and come on back after you have. Now, Jamie, when was the first time you saw Scarecrow and what did you think? Well, I was in junior high school and I became, I was part of the theater world starting in junior high school and I became obsessed with Al Pacino. My film consciousness was just starting to grow. And so I tracked down every movie I could find with Al Pacino in it. And I had no idea about Scarecrow. And I saw that he had done an early 70s movie with Gene Hackman, who has always been another one of my favorite actors. I was just, why haven't I seen this yet? So I, think I, I probably rented a VHS of it and checked it out. I, I loved it immediately. It felt like an undiscovered gem that was not talked about enough back in those times. How about you, Bill? Pretty sure the first time I saw Scarecrow was uh, in 2005 when Warner Brothers first put it out on DVD. It was a film that was on my wish list of things to see for a long time. I never found the VHS when I was growing up, but I was already a fan of um, Jerry Schatzberg's Panic in Eagle Park and uh, was already a pretty big uh, romanticizer of the uh, the new Hollywood period of the 1970s. Um, so it was something that I'd been looking for for a while. When the DVD came out, I think I pre-ordered it, assuming that it would be great. It was one of those happy cases where it lived up to my uh, expectations. And it feels like almost like the archetypal new Hollywood movie as far as... Um, you know, it has two uh, iconic actors of the period, and it's not really so plot-driven. It's uh, got this pessimistic feel. Like, it feels like it's c- trying to capture a feeling of the times with the uh, with the location shooting, uh, even though the characters are kind of out of step with the times that they're living in. I do remember this one on VHS. I remember the video box cover, and it was one of the least intriguing video boxes that there was just the picture of Al Pacino and Gene Hackman in kind of grubby clothes walking. And it was like, what the fuck is this? Um, and why is it called Scarecrow? So I wasn't intrigued enough by that photo and by the name to pick this up when I was working at Blockbuster. I kind of missed the boat on this one. It wasn't until I was doing research on Jerry Schatzberg for our Puzzle of a Downfall Child episode that I ended up watching this. And I'm so glad that I did. I fell into that sweet spot, like you're saying, Bill, with that early 70s new Hollywood cinema and the location shooting that you talked about, Jamie. Just there were so many things like I love when films like this were made like these quieter films about two friends especially when it came to the location shooting it kind of reminded me of like a two-lane blacktop where we follow these characters along and then just to see their relationship and the way that these characters change throughout the way that they adapt to each other and the way they actually kind of swap places at some point in the narrative is really fascinating to me and then Yeah, who gets better actors than a 1973 Al Pacino and Gene Hackman? They acted the shit out of this movie, and just watching those guys together is really a pleasure. And a post-Godfather Al Pacino. This was the mother load, because he had just gotten off of the first Godfather, and now all of a sudden he's a huge star. And he's the one, Pacino, that read the script for Scarecrow and said, I want to do this, because it had been, I think it had been a turnaround prior to that. Uh, so he kind of saved it. And by the way, I have the poster, which I think is the replication of the video cover you're talking about on my wall right now. So I have it proudly displayed. And it is one of those movies that's easy to fly under the radar, even though it, I think it shared the Palm Door or won the Palm Door or something. But it is a movie that was a lot more common in, in this period of cinema in the 1970s. But even then, I think it kind of rode below the radar. 
it's an interesting combination of, of, of talents also because the um like I'm a really big fan of the uh the Robert Altman films that Vilmos Zygmunt had shot just prior to this like McCabe and Mrs Miller images and the long goodbye it feels a little bit like an Altman film but with a playwright writing it and a former photographer composing the images with him so it feels like if altman's freewheeling improvisation the location driven kind of new hollywood cinema was given a little bit more shape by people that have a little bit more of a controlling uh tendency than altman tended to do like the camera doesn't wander like the the compositions are very deliberate in places and we'll probably get with the opening it's very very composed but um like it, it feels like yeah altman but reined in yeah, that opening shot is absolutely gorgeous. And it's one of those things where, yeah, they probably could have added some things in post, like the noise of the thunderclouds that are overhead. But that's real thunderclouds that we see overhead. The wind that's blowing, I'm like, I don't imagine they took wind machines out on location, but maybe they did. So there are some things that could have been trickery, but for the most part, you don't get sunlight like that in a studio. You know, everything looks beautiful. And just this nice, quiet opening of seeing Gene Hackman walking down this hill and being introduced to him, his struggle to get through this barbed wire fence, the introduction of Al Pacino in the the crux of this tree. It's like, what the heck is he doing here? But it's this nice way of we the way that we get introduced to these two characters and that they have this kind of silent interaction for a while until Pacino tries to start breaking the ice. And we get a real good feel for these two guys without them even saying a word within the first few minutes of the, of the film. It is very unusual and it's very brave uh, to open your movie like that, but it's very smart as well. First of all, it sets a pace. It also establishes the distance between them at first and how little by little Pacino closes that distance. That's a mirror of what we see throughout the entire movie. And uh, my other point about the opening shot is it felt to me like it had a real kind of European sensibility, which a lot of movies from that period of time did. They were very patient. Your camera was static and it just captured the life happening in front of it without the need to kind of embellish it in any way. Um, so I, I I was quite taken with that opening. I thought it was a great opening. Yeah, I, I agree with you about the European influence. I was thinking about Antonioni and uh, just the way that the figures are kind of almost dwarfed by the uh, the landscape in those opening shots. It's, it's the kind of composition that you wouldn't really see once video cassette came along because it's really composed for the big screen uh, with the, the the characters being so small within this this very large frame, it's the kind of thing that would just make no sense on home video. I mean, I, you guys saw it on video cassette. I mean, did that opening make any sense as far as like the characters couldn't both be in the same shot, or did they letterbox the titles? I did actually not see this on VHS. It wasn't until just recently that I saw it, so I got to see a nice widescreen transfer. But I don't know about Jamie. I imagine he saw it on VHS the first time, and I imagine it looked like garbage. I don't recall because you, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Unless they did letterbox it, all you'd see would, would be like a tumbleweed down the middle of the street. You'd be wondering, why am I watching this for five minutes? Or they'd have to choose which actor to be in the shot. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. And the pan and scan stuff that they would do would be terrible. No, I don't remember. It, it, it must have been letterboxed in some way because I don't remember that as a problem. 
And then pretty soon we get them breaking the ice. So there's the two characters, and I'm going to kind of refer to them interchangeably by actor and then character name. So Gene Hackman is Max and Al Pacino, he goes by Francis at first, and then eventually he, um, <laughs> Gene Hackman doesn't like Francis, so he asks him for his middle name, and it's Lionel. So he goes by Lion quite a few times in the, in the film, so I'll probably refer to him more as Lion and Hackman as Max. So we have Max getting his cigarette lit by Lion because his lighter doesn't work, and that breaks the ice. And we also have this whole thing of, Pacino pretending to get a phone call and then get two phone calls and then have the two phones speak to each other. And that's one of the first moments we get a Pacino just being an absolute goof through so much of this film. And it's this interesting defense mechanism that he has. He has this whole thing and it's where the name of the film comes from, Scarecrow. He has this whole thing where he tries to make people laugh so that he won't get hurt. And it's his way of trying to deflect. And so he is constantly trying to deflect by using humor and trying to ingratiate himself with people with humor. And with a, like I said, a 1973 Al Pacino, who's completely fearless, he does some amazing things where he just is, he's off the wall. You don't expect Mike Corleone to be like this. You don't even expect like what uh, Sonny from Dog Day Afternoon in a few years to be like this. He is bonkers a lot of times in this role, and it's really fitting to his character. Yeah, I think the first line he has maybe after uh, after a bit of silence is the eat cantaloupe, like the weird parody of Max's anger at a at a passing car, and and then the ape imitation, like r- right off the bat, like he's like coming up from behind trees, and then and then just all the strange behavior you're not really sure at the beginning why why he's if if he's if he's crazy or what what the story is with that character but how do you feel about them explaining the title so early on with the uh explaining what like what his approach to life is as far as diffusing situations by making people laugh because that was something i read was a criticism of uh, the film in some reviews that they actually spell out the theme i mean you don't want to be too explicit about it but i i think it's kind of customary in some cases to to establish your theme. You have an audience not necessarily know that that's the theme of your movie, but they can recall that story. So as the as those characters progress and that relationship progresses, more and more it comes into focus that, oh, the theme and the whole point of this relationship goes back to that story they told me at the beginning of the movie uh, about the scarecrow. And I, I mean, I, I like in how they they switch identities towards the end. I mean, it 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 kind of uh, foreshadows the switch roles that are to come. I mean, what's to come in the rest of the film? I've never seen a character like this really in a movie like Lion, because that's absolutely right. His openness, his humor, is his defense mechanism. On the surface, it feels very contradictory. What's going on with Max feels like more of a stereotypical defense mechanism. I mean, he, he pushes people away. He's very abrasive. He's very independent. He, 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 he's very guarded. He wears 20 different shirts. And Lion's defense mechanism is the exact opposite. And so there are great complements and contrasts between them. Well, that scene where he explains 
about the Scarecrow. And for folks listening who might not have seen this movie, even though I told you to go watch this movie, there's this whole thing where he's talking about that crows are not scared of Scarecrows, that they are amused by them. And they think, hey, this guy's okay. This farmer's okay. Let's go someplace else and just leave this guy's crops alone. After he tells that story, there's that great thing where we have Max undoing all of those shirts. And for each shirt that he takes off, he will say something like kind of a play on the crows are laughing. It'll be like, you know, the mice are playing piano or the elephants are herding sheep or something weird like that. And he's just taking these shirts off shirt after shirt after shirt. That's where we get the reveal that Max has all of these layers to him. And now I'm talking, of course, physical layers, but physical layers, we all know symbology. So we're going to see that Max has a lot more to him than what he is at the surface. And that really, when he decides to become the Scarecrow later on, that Pacino already is, that line already is, it's no coincidence that it is during a striptease and that he's taking off all of these shirts. And that's finally when he has his breakthrough and that he becomes open. He becomes that scarecrow. He decides not to use his fists because Gene Hackman, yes, he's taller than Al Pacino. I think pretty much anybody is taller than Al Pacino. It's he is the lumbering mean guy in this and he's always quick with a insult and he's very quick with his fists and that's what's gotten in into trouble before because in an early scene we find out that he's been in san quentin for i can't remember if it's six or nine years but it's all because he's so quick to anger heckman is so good and he's done obviously so many movies and I don't think he's ever been bad in a movie. I think he's certainly done his fair share of bad movies, but he's always the saving grace in anything he's in. But he has a few favorite performances of his own, and Scarecrow's right at the top. I mean, I think Hackman was a Marine. It uses his natural brawniness and masculinity to full effect. He's magnificent in this movie, really. I think he uh, had said that the fact that he was uh, able, because they shot the film in sequence, and I think that that allowed him to build the character organically over the course of the shoot. And I think that was one of the things he had said was uh, a reason why that that character was especially uh, important to him. It's a shame that they didn't get along. I hear that Pacino and Hackman didn't get along, and and Pacino always kind of bemoaned that fact because he loved Hackman. And I think that Hackman had an enormous respect for Pacino. I just think. Hackman carried, just like Pacino, but I think Hackman carried a lot of that character around with him uh, while he was shooting. And so there wasn't uh, a lot of openness for chit-chat. <laughs> you know, you have you have two of the great method actors uh, working at the, the, the opening of this new Hollywood, and they're trying to show their stuff. It's not, you know, it's not going to be, hey, let's sit and, and shoot the shit in between takes. It's That must have been a really intense uh, experience between the two of them. Did you ever see the featurette about the making of Scarecrow that's on the DVD? There's footage of them preparing for the scene where, um, like, where the uh, the fire and the cops come and they get thrown in prison after celebrating at the bar. And um, Hackman is very studiously preparing. It looks very intense. It's just like staring off. And Pacino is running around, warming up, like, like he's getting into a sillier character. And Hackman looks like vaguely irritated that like his quiet concentration is being unsettled by the and it just it, it kind of almost kind of rhymes with the characters they're playing in the film that they, their methods clash a little bit 
that behind the scenes shot is probably indicative of what the relationship was like during the shoot. But as it as it should be, uh, I yeah. mean that that that's that, that's kind of the battle of uh, uh, of styles between those two characters, much less the actors that play them. Yeah, I think I read in a biography of Pacino where he was like, we became friends, but we didn't realize that we were friends until after the movie was over. So it was like during the shoot, I think they had a lot of conflict, but afterwards they were okay with one another. So it wasn't like a grudge that they held. But yeah, I can see when you get those guys who are so into their craft that they are going to have issues with one another or could have issues. And especially, yeah, because they are playing characters who are conflict so much throughout this film. And then uh, eventually they become friends. And so I imagine that there was some of that stuff in real life as well. The whole plan in Scarecrow is that uh, they're going to open up a car wash, right? This is the weirdest recurring theme I've ever seen at movies. Pacino has played two characters whose dream it was to open up a car wash. And the other character was at Carlito's Way. What a weird kind of coincidence there. Maybe it was a nod. Yeah. Maybe Pacino said, find me a script of a guy that wants to open up a car wash. I love playing it the first time. I'm going to go to Pittsburgh and make a car wash. That was the worst Al Pacino impersonation ever. Sorry. We talked about how... um Max wants Francis to change his name to Lion. And I was wanted to ask you guys about that because do you think that that is because Francis is an effeminate name and there's a, a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's homophobia or like concern about his own masculinity. Like the first time that they have a extended conversation out, out off the road is in that diner full of, uh, mounted animal heads and trucks and some kind of, kind of a macho environment. But then like he's quick to be telling stories about like the cab driver's wife and getting fight, you know, getting into fights while naked and, uh, like always talking about sex. And, uh, like do you th- we don't really know if he's, had an experience in prison. I know there's the line about like, you know, no women in prison. What did you do? And he doesn't really, he kind of evades the question. So when they get to prison, you're not sure if he's already kind of been through something like what happens later in the film. But do you think that that's, that there's some backstory that they're trying to play as far as what happened to Hackman in prison? I think it might very well be practical like that. Like Francis is too much for a girly name, but I also think, and maybe I'm totally wrong. I think it might have something to do with the Wizard of Oz. And, and I mean, I know I sound flighty when I say this. Maybe I'm way off base. But, you know, the Cowardly Lion and the Wizard of Oz and his journey is to get some courage. And if you see Hackman as as the man's man, the, the guy that nobody screws with, uh, he, he made himself hard over the years. And uh, then see Pacino, maybe, maybe Pacino's brand of courage would be to be more like Hackman. When actually, by the movie's end, the real courage is for Hackman to be more like Pacino. I read that as the reason for him to go by the name Lion. I don't know if that occurred to either one of you. That did not occur to me, but I have to say that the homosexual themes just run rampant through this movie, and they're just kind of out there and not really addressed. So it's it's an interesting way to read the film is just like, all right, we are just denying homosexuality at all times, but then it rears its head quite a few times through the film. And again, talking about like the stripping and all these kind of things, there's a lot of stuff going on in here. And even like in one of the early scenes, uh, post that bar scene, they go to another bar and run into Eileen Brennan and 
that weird interchange that, that because so there's all this stuff going on and I had to watch this scene quite a few times to really kind of figure out what's going on. There's a conflict happening between Max and Eileen Brennan who is overly loud and he's threatening her and then all of a sudden uh, Pacino is lying is screaming and crying out and Max goes to rescue him and Lion is there with this mannequin who it looks like has its fingers up his nose and that kind of again diffuses the situation next thing you know eileen brennan and max are going up to their uh her room i guess it is and there's lion with the mannequin and they have almost like a four-way <laughs> with this thing but then we we cut it before the sex really starts happening we get to see eileen brennan's ginormous boobs in this but there's like that weird thing and then like the way that uh lion is trying to almost like change things be- by demanding that they all wash their hands and then it just cuts like the this movie has a very interesting editing style where a lot of times things are just starting to get going and we chop them off um and we'll talk about the editing more later but that's one of those moments where we just we don't get the sex or anything we just chop that scene and so we don't really know what happens with that damn mannequin maybe that's the sequel maybe the sequel is actually the story of that mannequin yeah that whole hand washing scene uh goes even even uh, further in the uh, in the script as far as like you know him him forcing them to wash the hands and it it's just a strange moment and there's also the, all the, a lot more dialogue where line is making comments about about big boobs in the strip in the uh like the the, uh, the the porno movie that they're watching in that bar um like it feels like the 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 lion characters are like i don't know about slightly more sexual or at least a little bit more adult than than the way it comes off in the final film where it's a lot more of an innocent like i think even when we get to hackman's sister later in the story and you think that they're going to pair off into two couples but he stays kind of like platonic in in that dynamic um i don't know if that was like a choice that they made during the shoot or, if, or, or, or how that went. Yeah, that was interesting. And there was so much more when it comes to that interaction between, uh, Lion and Coley, uh, who's played by Dorothy Tristan, um, who we find out is Max's sister. There's so much more to them talking. And that's where we get the whole idea of the asbestos suit that we get later on in the film, which just shows up out of nowhere in the version that we see today. It's just like, why does he have an asbestos suit? This is interesting. <laughs> but I mean, it doesn't, it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense other than her being kind of a junk merchant and seeming to have all of these bizarro things around, including this lie detector test, which is an interesting way to also get information about your characters by literally making them take a lie detector test in the movie and get their true feelings that way. One of the major set pieces of the movie is that meeting with Coley, the meeting with Frenchie, who's played by the gorgeous Anne Wedgworth, who I always enjoyed seeing in movies. I always enjoyed her, especially in um, Citizens Band, which was around somewhere around the same time, if memory serves. And yeah, that tension between those characters is very interesting. But yeah, there's that unresolved romance between Coley and Lion. And it's another moment. And because there's a lot of times where it seems like he could get lucky and he either chooses not to or it just doesn't happen. 
And I know that's one of the complaints about this film is that somebody wrote that uh, women are treated as mattresses in here because they just are basically there to serve that purpose of having men sleep with them. And I can see that as being kind of a valid criticism of this, though this is a, a men's story. I don't know. I think I think his sister is definitely an independent woman that has has her own. Uh, she's a, she's a good, strong female character, and and Wedgworth, and it might just be just by casting her, brings such uh, sparkling personality to that character. I mean, she's always so alive in any of her performances. I like the the females in the movie, but, but also with Anne Wedgworth. Did have you ever reached out to her? I mean, I know she's passed now, but. Did you ever reach out to her for an interview? Because I did one. I tried, yeah. I, I did like 10 years ago when, when I first started my podcast, and I so wanted to talk to her because I, I like you, always thought she was such a charming presence on film, um, and I was interested in hearing her thoughts on her own career. And her assistant wrote me back and said, she's, she's not someone who likes to toot her own horn. She's not comfortable with it. And, and the assistant said, I've even tried to convince her to ha- have a website, build a website showcasing her work. And, and she's very uncomfortable with that. Uh, I mean, so she was a very, she was a very modest, extremely talented uh, and beautiful actress. She really was. Yeah, she had a nice long career. There is a, a, a spark that's happening, though, between Lion and Coley, it feels like though he's not about to rush things. And there's definitely a spark that happens between Frenchie and Max. And I like that conversation that happens between Coley and Lyon, where she's talking about Max, you know, that he's not very bright and that he keeps sending all this money to Pittsburgh. And why can't they just have a car wash here in Denver, which is where they're at? It's nice because Lyon does try to bring that up, but Max is dead set. The most dirt is going to be found in Pittsburgh, so we need to go to Pittsburgh. That's that's the best location for a car wash. So he's got his plan down to the penny, which I really appreciate that he's been working these figures for so many years in San Quentin, but he's got it all worked out. So it's... Um, it doesn't necessarily happen for them, and it really doesn't happen for them after they have their kind of going away dinner and... Max ends up getting in another fight, and that sends him to the work farm. That sends him and Lion to the work farm, where we get the introduction of the wonderful Richard Lynch. I always love when he shows up on screen. Yeah, I was a really big fan of his uh, performance in a, uh, a film called The Premonition. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's a uh, like a mid seventies kind of horrorish film. Um, but uh, that's that's he plays like this. Uh, this carnival clown, uh, like psycho clown in it. That's what I kind of associate him with is, is with the, the genre film roles like that. And, uh, God told me to. So I'd seen those before coming to this and it was great to see him go toe to toe with, uh, Hackman and Pacino in a, in a, uh, you know, a Hollywood, like a big budget Hollywood film like this, but he's fantastic in the film. You're going to be on a big Hollywood film and you're going to play the part of a convict who, uh, rapes a kindly Al Pacino. Uh, it must have felt like a little bit of a missed blessing, a mixed blessing uh, for him. I mean, that's a, that's a tough role. Yeah, well, he was the. I mean, he had a, he had a look that was likely to get him typecast, probably with the with the burned skin. But uh, he, but he's he's so convincing in it that it uh, for better for worse, it made him a heavy for the rest of his career. Really, I was looking really hard for the burned skin in this, and I didn't necessarily see it that much in this and 
it was probably my shitty transfer of it, but he looked really handsome to me in this movie. Since you mentioned the one film that you really like him in, I will throw this one out there. I love him in The Baron, which was kind of a black exploitation film that I would love to cover on this show sometime. And he is amazing as the really, he's not a psycho clown in there, but he's a psycho killer. And he's just fantastic in that movie as well. He's almost like the Gene Hackman of exploitation. He was always good, even in the shittiest movies that you've ever seen. Do you feel like the rape is ambiguous? Uh, I mean, we clearly see that he's beaten in the assault scene, but do you in in the script? It's pretty uh, clear that that uh, that Riley had uh, raped Lion, but I was never sure if it was in, you know if it was ambiguous. I, it always felt ambiguous to me in in the final film. I mean, whether or not that happened, did does it play that way for you? I did not think that he got raped until I read the screenplay when he openly just says when he comes in and it, it doesn't even talk about him being beaten to a pulp. He comes in and kind of trips over Max's bed and then he says, I was raped. He raped me. And it's just like, Oh shit. But watching the movie a few times, I just thought that he was beaten up. So it's not that apparent. Well, he has the line in the film, Riley tried to fuck me. Like, tried is the, was the word, but, but I don't know if it's pride or not. Yeah. The 70s, for the movies, it was a very rapey decade in movies. <laughs> in the <laughs> 70s. A decade under the influence or a decade that was really rapey. That was the alternate title for that. Yeah, well, it becomes, it becomes like a rape revenge film for, for about 20 minutes at one point <laughs> in the film. And I do like that Max then sticks up for his friend. You know, that's the moment when we know that they're still okay. Because after they get arrested, there's a falling out between them. And Max sent to the pig farm to shovel shit. And Lion is being groomed by Riley, the Richard Lynch character, and before the rape happens. And then you get Max beating up Riley and I can only imagine how bad he beats him up. And I like that. And it's even in the screenplay. They they do this nice thing where they are away from it, but you can hear those punches landing. And it's a nice way to show and to experience that revenge of him just beating the shit out of Richard Lynch without really seeing it. And you're just seeing it from that distance. And I can only imagine what that might've looked like on the big screen. It probably looked gorgeous. In the original screenplay that, that, that rape scene had the line, like uh, I'll bite it off. Like he's, it's, it's a lot more explicit than the final film is. I was also thinking about how uh, Vilmos Zygmunt had shot deliverance only right before that to another big, uh, you know, male on uh, a male rape, uh, male on male rape film of the uh, of the period. <laughs> I guess Warner Brothers. You know, they they had a they had a few of those. This is um, I don't know if it would have um, made it more commercial in a way if that had been more explicit because that's maybe the most famous scene in Deliverance. But it's still disturbing either way. It's the most uh, horrifying scene in Scarecrow by far. So this really has to be the moment where these characters start to turn, because now Lion, regardless of whether we're to think that he was raped or not, that he got the shit kicked out of him, you know, either way, he has to now start to protect himself a little bit more. And then Max is starting to open himself up a little bit more. And we get that nice, and it's a very slow rotation. It's not like they just switch places, but we do start to see that 
facade of Max's crack, and we get to see a little bit of lions start to build up from there. Because we've got, I mentioned that striptease scene where they're in yet another bar. There's a lot of bars in this movie. And there, it looks like things are going to turn into violence again, but Max actually diffuses the situation by performing the striptease. But then at the end of that sequence, we get this push in on Lion, and it's almost like we're seeing him in that Max role, where his friend is playing the fool to defuse the situation, and he's standing off to the side, and it's a nice look on Pacino's face, and trying to figure out, you know, us as the audience are trying to figure out exactly what's going on in his head, and those are some of those moments where you really appreciate just the level of acting that is brought to this film. I'd heard at least one interview with Gary Michael White, who says that Pacino's character, uh, Lion's Breakdown, in the last uh, act of the film, that they had removed scenes in editing it down before release, That uh, so that when in the final version, it, it seems very rapid, his descent uh, after that phone call, but we have more clues that, that things aren't all right with him in the original screenplay. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, we have uh, right after the the um, the strip scene we're talking about. There's like, I think I think a scene was written where like Lion comments on his palms being wet, uh, like he wants to get drunk, and then uh, like has some line about like Riley knew uh, Riley knocked me awake, and that the guilt over what he's done to to Annie is starting to overwhelm him. Do you feel like that criticism holds weight, or do you do you feel like it? Um, it still feels like it makes sense the way that it unfolds in the final film, like his his quick descent into the uh, like the psychotic breakdown. I think it feels authentic the way it's portrayed in the movie. I mean, I, I, I could believe that someone that went through that uh, ordeal in prison and then their 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 own kind of dream of of rectifying a wrong uh, by calling the ex wife with the child and then having that dream kind of shattered is enough to, you know, turn you catatonic. Uh, um, at least for that character, it made sense to me. Someone who, who is so open and who's trying to survive by keeping a positive, humorous attitude about things. Um, I, I, I believed it, but that was enough to break him down. I think that it's okay that we go into that, catatonic state and we'll get there in a few minutes but i think we're okay with that turn but i think i kind of would have liked to have seen at least some more glimmers of that in those steps leading up to it because we go pretty quick from prison camp or what do they call it work camp day camp whatever that is to the detroit scene pretty quick. There's not a whole lot of stuff going on in between there. And I like in the screenplay, there's actually directions in there to talk about, like, once we arrive in Detroit, the film should have a different flavor. Like, it should be shot differently. There should be more, I think it's like greens and blues or something, that it should have a darker look to it. I mean, it just, it looked like Detroit to me, so I didn't really notice that there was a different hue to things. But as soon as they get off and you see that train station in the the background, um, you know, just, I'm like, okay, this is Detroit. So I just, 
I, I see everything through that Detroit lens and recognize the streets, recognize all that kind of stuff. So I didn't necessarily see a difference in there. But after reading the screenplay, I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe there was a little bit of a different way that they were shooting this in this point. But then again, it's in the screenplay. So it, it's Schatzberg could have taken that advice or ignored it, whatever he wanted to do. When he gets to the editing room, I'm sure he's thinking, okay, what do I absolutely need? Anything that I don't absolutely need, I think we can we can take out. Uh, and I, I think the, the prison rape is such a turn, and you have another huge turn coming up shortly thereafter, that you don't necessarily need to belabor the point. I mean, you, you need to make it feel like a one-two shot, and then he's down. Uh, I think the impact of that it, it, it's it's great on the audience as well as the character and that scene on on own um telephone acting is very difficult uh i would imagine and uh pacino's great at it and and the the person on the other end of that line what what's her name penny um yeah it's penny allen she she's an old theater buddy of pacino's i mean they go way back uh so they they had a rapport already um, as colleagues, but um, I, I think that's an exceptionally well, well acted scene. And also, I think <clears throat> when you're talking about acting while working with props, which essentially is from the prop, Pacino's great at that. But uh, also, Hackman, I, I, I love the scene where he's eating the fried chicken and he's drunk and the girl's like flirting with him. And because uh, eating is always so great when you're acting because you can't really fake eating. Like, you're, you can't if you're really eating you can't fake it and that makes everything else like around it very natural and organic and he is he is so so good and so in the moment at that scene that i think those are my two favorite performance beats in that movie from both of them i like hackman with the chicken bone using that to point at things in that scene personally but <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> good best use of drumstick goes to gene hackman yeah, Penny Miller, her performance in this, man, it is great. And just the way that it builds and the way that the writing, uh, the script has this building and going, you know, just like she knows the buttons to push and we have these levels that we go to and it's great. You know, we have the level of I was married. And then we have the level of, I don't appreciate the money. And then we have the, oh, the baby that you thought that you had or that I had five years ago. Yeah, the baby's dead. And then she kicks it up one more notch and says, you know, oh, I would have been okay had you been here, but I was all alone. I was all alone, Francis. And then, oh, geez, you know what? Since that baby died and wasn't baptized, it's going to go straight to hell. And that's the bridge too far for Francis and he hangs up the phone. And then when he gets out of that phone booth and screams, it's a boy. So elated. I mean, Oh my God, it just, it tears the heart out of you. And that wonderful shot of the present that he's taken with him all across country that we've seen every time we see lion, we see this box with a bow on it and we just get that there on this car abandoned and we move on to the next scene. It is a masterclass. This whole sequence is fantastic. One thing I noticed about the scene watching it again this time was she really lays into him after lion 
kind of uh, makes light of the fact that she's married to Joey the Banana King. Like that he kind of it almost sounds like he's he feels like he's off the hook that all of his guilt about abandoning her is immediately lifted because she's okay. She's got she's got a husband. She's she's not the abandoned woman in his mind. And when she hears that relief in him, that's when she destroys him. And I also think about the fact that had he not listened to Max, he would have not gone into the situation at all because Max is always trying to get him to call ahead. And had he not called ahead, he would have seen his son and this uh, this guilt over uh, sending his son's soul into limbo would not you know, be the thing that really cracks him. Yeah, what a heartbreaking moment. You know, it's also interesting how uh, he one of his other great scenes in his career uh, is equally heartbreaking. It's the telephone conversation at towards the end of Dog Day, um, mm. which is one of his most emotional moments on screen. I think, yeah, it, with the way you just described it, Mike. I mean, it really does bring back the emotion of that scene for me, especially when he tries to play it off uh, by by screaming out, "It's a it's a boy," but he can't do that this time. You know, he he can't rise above it through through his usual defense mechanisms because it, i mean this this cuts him this cuts him apart it's critical of of lion as far as um like that childlike whimsical humor that he's had the entire film you see how painful it is for annie that he could be off having childlike adventures while she's living in a slum with joey with the banana king <laughs> That he's so quick to readopt a happy, you know, uh, a happy demeanor when he thinks that it's all okay. Um, that there's a certain, um, maybe unwitting selfishness to that character. Um, and it's not something that you really get in the rest of the film because he's, he's the good hearted character that is helping to make Max's life better and, and, and get him out of his kind of abrasive shell. But, uh, this is the first time that you really see him as having his own problems uh, in in a way that's you know uh, painful for this other character. And it, Mike, you mentioned the way women are, uh, come off in the film. Um, you know, most of them are are you know sexual figures for the character, and then the only real big exception, big exceptions would be uh, the Dorothy Tristan character, Coley, and and this character who is. Um, you know, a very, uh, a bra- like she's, she's what boys off on an adventure on the road would most, uh, fear is the nagging wife kind of character. You know, she only has that note of, of anger to play and guilt, but, uh, it's, it's, it's a really powerful scene. Um, but it, 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 it complicates the lion character almost immediately in an interesting way, I think. When she's completely desexualized with the curlers in her hair and she's, not the most beautiful woman in the world, at least in this film. You know, they, they're playing Penny as being kind of this harpy character and the curlers just add to that. And yeah, you're right. She's just, she's the kind of woman you would want to run away from and join the merchant Marines. And, you know, rather than him being scared, which is why he said that he ran away, it just seems like she was an unpleasant person. But thinking about it, it's like she, he goes into the Merchant Marines, which is 
another like world of men. You know, I'm sure I could make like a in the Navy, uh, village people type joke here, but it's like, you know, another world of men that Max was in his world of men with the prison and lions in his world of men. So I'm curious, you know, what do you do on a ship for a year when there's no women around? There's that theme of homosexuality that just keeps running through this that is not really addressed necessarily. I think, too, in addition to the homosexuality, I think a lot of movies from this period dealt with the masculinity as well. I think they really examined what it means to be masculine. All the anti-heroes throughout the decade, the kind of the aimless, the Bobby Dupuis and, and Five Easy Pieces on onward. Uh, I mean, what do, what does it mean to be a heroic male character? And you know, I, I think even Altman. Uh, I just got done doing a big show about the Long Goodbye. I think that has a, a great examination of masculinity in it. I, I think that theme runs throughout this the seventies decade. Yeah, we mentioned Deliverance also, and it's another Vilmos film with the. Uh... Yeah, the masculine themes. But I wanted to mention also, um, but, but just back to that phone scene, I was thinking also how his ability to diffuse a situation with comedy is hobbled by the fact that they, she can't see him, that he, that he can't, he can't use his scarecrow, uh, philosophy in, in that scenario because it's, uh, she can't see him. It's all, it's all verbal without his one way of coping with, with tense situations. He's, he's, he's stuck. Even if they were face-to-face, I think the her would have been too deep, what he did to her. The her lashing out is probably a great catharsis for her in that scene as well. I don't know if I'd call it a, a victory for her, but I'm sure it was a cathar- cathartic emotional payoff for her, in a way, with what she's been living with for so long. I have to say, great job on casting the kid. The kid looked like a young Al Pacino. They really did a good job with that. And I think it would have been a lot less painful for Lion when they go over to Belle Isle. And it just happens to be take your sons to Belle Isle Day, I guess, um, because it is all of these little boys there and they're all there kind of looking at Max and Lion and Lion is kind of doing his shtick again, putting on the show. And it's funny. And then it's sad, and then it's heartbreaking, and then his heart gets broken. And that's the moment where he just slips into insanity and never comes back from it. It was nice to see Belle Isle again on a movie. Uh, we actually recorded an episode uh, when we did our Detroit 9000 episode. We recorded there in Belle Isle right by that fountain, which wasn't running that day. But it's always nice to see Detroit on screen, not necessarily in a uh, tragic, heartbreaking scene. If ever I visit there, I'll find a kid to dunk in the water, but uh, in the fountain there. Uh, but do <laughs> So do you recognize uh, the Detroit that's depicted in that movie from 45 years ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that fountain is still there. Belle Isle is still there. That train station, when they first come into town, that's kind of in the background when they're coming off of the train, that just got bought by uh, Ford Motor Company recently. They're going to build a new campus down there. That train station that abandoned until recently or still is kind of abandoned but i think they're having a party down there very soon that was kind of the symbol of detroit because it was abandoned for so long this big beautiful building with nothing inside of it with no guts to it i like the piece as a i remember asking the the writer about this 
if he had all set out to make a wider portrait of America through the prism of these two characters, and he kind of denied that. But I, I, I do love movies that have an authentic feel for place, as this movie certainly does. So you really do get a screenshot of these life in these towns that they drift through and the people and the cars and just the feel of it. Uh, and I, I, I love movies that, that can do that. And it did feel like it didn't feel like a, uh, like an atmosphere that was staged. Like I, it felt voyeuristic. It almost felt like they put a camera on stilts and they let these two actors just kind of drift in and out of these real surroundings. Well, that's the thing I love most about Scarecrow is that it feels like you have these titans of acting uh, and you have this very well-written script and you have this director cinematographer team that have a real eye for interesting lighting and composition, but then you put them in what feel like not dressed up America and and, and whether it's the department stores or the diner or the bars or the parks, it feels like documentary like in a way, even though it's very composed and structured, but it feels like all of this real life is bleeding into the edges. And that's one of the things that also reminds me of Altman because that, you know, the same way that Altman feels like captured moments, even though it's, scripted narrative filmmaking uh, scarecrow has that kind of quality where it feels same as five easy pieces too like they, they these they they make a real good use of real locations that it, it feels like they've just kind of dropped in on a real bar or a real shopping complex and filmed their scenes and just left the uh the reality in the margins even though i'm sure it was not that way but it feels it feels very authentic and real by the way you mentioned the um department store scene you know who else loves this movie is uh, David Letterman. It's one of David Letterman's favorite movies. <clears throat> and his favorite scene, and whenever Pacino would come on the David Letterman show, which he did like two or three times, Letterman would say, my favorite scene is that scene in the department store where you uh, kind of make a scene so Hackman can steal something from the department store. Well, what you do is so jarring that Hackman forgets to steal <laughs> he's too busy pay, paying attention to you he, he let was like that's one of the great comic scenes so that's an interesting aside about scarecrow i always felt like this is a film that pacino downplayed in his filmography too because i i heard stories that he was that it was his film at first and that hackman ultimately stole it from him or that chatsburg favored Hackman in the final cut of the film, which, you know, I don't, I don't see it that way, but that he, uh, was disappointed with the film on some level, but I don't know. I, I think it's one of his best films of that period. You can't escape that. I mean, obviously Schatzberg had a great affection for Pacino. I mean, hell, Schatzberg was the one that pretty much discovered Pacino. And if it wasn't for Schatzberg, Coppola wouldn't have known necessarily to, you know, he sent him over reels from Panic at Needle Park when he was considering him for The Godfather. And that those reels, I think, really sold the studio on him. So Schatzberger is a big presence in Pacino's early career. But in a way, it's you can't escape the, the most aggressive alpha male character kind of overpowering uh, the cowardly lion, you know, in the movie. I mean, it's just, that's how, that's that's understandable, I think. Well, the movie starts with Hackman, like we said, and it ends with Hackman. 
And at the end of the movie, Pacino is comatose. So really, it, by, by default, it kind of has to be Hackman's movie just because he's the one left standing at the end of the day. And he's the one that undergoes a positive optimistic change. We have to talk about this ending because the first time I watched this, I had no idea what was happening. Reading the screenplay gave me a little bit more insight. And then going back and rewatching the ending a couple times today kind of helped cement things. I think one reason, and this sounds a little catty, but I think one reason why Europeans like this a little bit more than Americans was that I had a hard time sometimes understanding the dialogue and watching it with subtitles on really helped because then I could really follow it along a lot more and pick up on some of the little nuances because there's a lot of stuff being given to us in dialogue. This is for all intents and purposes. It was written by a playwright and it has a lot of things going on in the dialogue and a lot of just little nuances that we're not necessarily going to pick up the first time through this. So watching it a few times, Watching it with the subtitles on, I picked up a lot more. So I didn't even understand the first time I watched this, what happens at the end. I didn't really even pick up that it was a round trip ticket from Detroit to Pittsburgh. I thought that he was just abandoning Lion and going to Pittsburgh regardless. Second time I watched it, I picked up on the idea of he's going to give, uh, he's getting a round trip ticket from Detroit to Pittsburgh. So he'll be back to take care of Lion. Third time I watched it, I picked up on him offering the $2,600 that he was going to use to start the car wash business to the doctor. And then finally figured out, okay, he's offering him this money. Now he's going to go down to Pittsburgh, get the money out of the bank, which is where he's been keeping it. He keeps wiring this money to Pittsburgh. And then he's going to come back. Then he's going to take care of, of Lion. So it took me a lot to get that. And then even reading the screenplay, there's more to it because he's talking about even working at the hospital where Lion is so that he could take care of him and use his wages basically to help take care of Lion. So there's a lot of layers here that I just didn't pick up on. So I will admit that I was a complete dumbass the first time I watched this and was just like, wow. He's just going to abandon Al Pacino? Wow, what a cold-hearted bastard. You watched a completely different movie the first time around. <laughs> In the screenplay, I mean they it's a lot less it's a lot more clear because the uh there's an exchange between uh Max and the doctor about how if Lyons in a state hospital, he could be in there all his life. But uh, in a private hospital, uh, you know, it could be like three years. And then Max offers to work at that private hospital and give all of the money that he had saved up for the car wash. So it it ends on a note of him uh, offering to work to to help to save uh, Lyon, but it doesn't have that comic note at the end with the money in the shoe. It didn't have that that ending. It's a little bit harder to read if you don't catch that it's a round trip ticket because when he offers to pay. The money that he has, the doctor kind of walks away from him like that money is not nearly enough to save Lion uh, from you know the the hospital you know scenario. So it it does play a little bit more ambiguous. If you do, it, even if you do catch the the ticket line, it's a it's a little bit less clear. Clearly, a happy ending maybe than uh, than it was written to be. Even those moments where they talk about Max sleeping on his shoes or having his shoes under his pillow, like we see that at one point and then we hear Frenchie talk about it. But it even took me a couple of times before I realized 
why he sleeps with his shoes under his pillow, which is because he keeps his money in his shoes. So, yeah, it, I was feeling very dumb the last time I watched this, and finally all these light bulbs were going off. I think the shoes are essential for him to, to live uh, as well. I mean, they do good uh, for him to keep moving. And uh, when he takes his shoe off, I mean, maybe that's that symbolism to mean that I'm staying here for him. I think it's enough what's in the film now. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that they didn't get into the whole, hey, I'll, I'll work at this hospital. And because that's a whole kind of practical thing that you have to work out. That's a, a lot more dialogue than is needed at the end of the movie, I think. I, I think I, I, when I watched it, I absolutely got the point that he said, I'll pay you, I'll pay you what, whatever you need. I've got money. I, I just got to go get it in Pittsburgh. And I think he dismisses it because he thinks, yeah, sure. Yeah, you just got to go to a different state and get money and then come back. Sure, I, I, I hear you. Not believing him. Mm. But I, I think it's obvious that he is committed to helping his friend. And I just I just it, love the way, it sounds weird, but the way the movie just cuts off in mid-banging on the, <laughs> the airline counter with the shoe. And it's over. And uh, I mean, it just leaves you with, oh, oh, like you know, you just had the experience, and oh, I want more of it. No, no, no. Uh, I think it's just brilliant how it closes. Compared to a lot of the other uh, road movies of the new Hollywood, like Tulane Blacktop or Five Easy Pieces, uh, The Rain People, like this feels like you know one of the most optimistic endings. At least because the character, I mean, even, no matter what the the, the ultimate fate is for for. Uh, uh, Lion, you know, Max has has learned the right lessons and is, you know, ending things, you know, in a, in a positive way. Well, and that they bring up that happy road music music is a weird thing too, because it's like now we end with the happy song, so it's a it's a moment of hope, but at the same time, the way that we just cut off from him banging his shoe on the counter is just like whoa. What just happened? And then here's this happy tune. So music is used very effectively in this film, I have to say, because it's used sparingly. And most of the time, it sounds like it's being used diegetically. But there are a few montages of travel where we get this music. And that's a nice touch. I mean, I think we go for, I, I wanted to say, five minutes at the beginning of the film with no music. I mean, we, I talked about the sparsity of dialogue. And it's a lot of noise a lot of 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 um sound effects or of the wind and very little dialogue and we just kind of layer things in as we go along through this i mean the first sound that we hear is the thunder from this impending storm yeah i gotta tell you i love the music and if i remember correctly it's it's basically just a theme i don't know if there's a lot of diversity to it but uh even so, I, I would love that sound. I, I would love for that to be on a soundtrack, or me to me to be able to find an isolated music track for that. You know, it's that and David Shire's score for Straight Time. Those are the, like the two from the 1970s. Those are the two holy grails for me. But I wish I could find isolated music tracks for them. Yeah, and Fred Myro, the composer of that score, is the uh, I, I know him best as the uh, the go to composer for almost all of the Don Coscarelli films. Like he's the guy behind Phantasm and Jim the World's Greatest and Kenny and Company, and I think also Soylent Green um, he did. But I mean, yeah, it's it's so different from something like Phantasm. I mean, it's, it almost feels it gives. I think like it has like a I don't know why I always think of it as having an Americana feel. Like it's very bouncy with the piano and the muted trumpet, and uh, doesn't it have a juice harp. In it there does too? have a juice harp, yeah. It feels like music that uh, 
if a bunch of hobos were together and they each had a musical instrument, it feels like a slapdash kind of day that they put together on the spot. I only found a, there was like a 45 available of, and it wasn't even available. 45 was listed on a website where it was music from Scarecrow on the A side and B side. And that was it. I never found a soundtrack album. And then trying to find that 45 was pretty much impossible. They, they I wouldn't have believed that he even existed except that they had photographs of the label on the A side and B side. I would absolutely 100% buy that. It's probably like $3,000 or something silly, but I mean, with my luck, I get it back and it would have the, the striptease song on it that you can get <laughs> from, <laughs> from any movie. You can get the Kenny and Company soundtrack out there, by the way, just, just people know. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First, we're going to hear from director Jerry Schatzberg, and after that, we'll hear from screenwriter Gary Michael White, and we'll be back with both of those interviews right after these brief messages. You know, the girl from that, the, yes, the, yes, I the know show exactly. on that. I know God, exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The the hair was, it, but it was different. And she has the the, the, the lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. She, no, she was just okay. You've seen her in a million movies. You know, but the, who but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person. <laughs> we don't always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. <laughs> Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby, you know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. Better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, Try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. <laughs> <Turn in. laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in. <laughs> thing, turn in. How hard is it just to plank the damn show? Do it right or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish, 
to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Tell me a little bit about Panic in Needle Park. I mean, that must have been, uh, it, it's crazy that that was such a powerful role for Al Pacino. And here he is, like, I think that was, what, his second feature? He hadn't even done The Godfather yet. Well, no, he, he had done, uh, it was his first major role. He did a very small part in uh, another film, uh, the Poison Ivy or something. I don't know. Uh, it wasn't really a role. It just a few minutes in it, but uh, I had seen him on stage uh, doing Indian Wants the Bronx, and I was with uh, my business manager, who was, uh, I guess, trying to get Al to sign him up, because Al had won a couple of Obies uh, in New York, and uh, we went to theater together, and I said to him, boy, if ever, and this is four years before I ever thought of making a film, but I said, if ever I made a film, that's the guy I'd want to work with. And I saw him in the, because of this play he was just riveting. And we went backstage. I met him, and uh, Marty, my manager, did eventually get to manage uh, Al. When I finished uh, Puzzle, the lab had scratched the last six minutes of the negative. A screw got loose in the machines or something, whatever. But uh, you know, I had a protection, but it was an internegative which I don't even notice now, so I guess the digitally uh, they can print them as well as, uh, you know, uh, the rest of the film. At any rate, I was very upset when uh, when that happened, and my agent had seen the film, loved it. They were looking for a director for Panic um, Needle Park, and she told them she's going to give it to me, and they knew, my, they knew me and my name because, you know, Dunn and Didion, they worked for the fashion magazine, so they knew my name from uh, Vogue or Glamour, and uh, and so they gave it to me, and I read it. I read it fast, and I, I was so upset. I just said, no, I don't want to get into this uh, drugs and all that. You know, uh, I just it's really I was trying to solve the problem of of getting puzzle out, getting out. And then I went up to my manager's office, and he said, you know, there's a good film, there's a good script out there. You should look into it. I said, what's that? He said, it's called Panic in Needle Park. I said, I think I've just turned that down. He said, I, I think it's pretty good. You know, you should ought to do it. And I said, well, I don't know. You know, I just want to get this film finished. Well, I said, I think it's good. And Al is interested. I said, oh. <laughs> so I went back and I read it again. And then now knowing Al as the character, well, it was a different script for me. 
And I went back to the producers and I apologized. I told them how stupid I was. They agreed with me. And, but uh, we all made up and, and uh, we started to work on it. Uh, but I had already told Dominic Don, producer, that um, I, I wanted Al for that part. And he said, yeah, sure, absolutely. And uh, then I remember him saying to me one time, he says, you know, I've talked to uh, people about him and his acting. And they said, that's the, only, that's the only kind of thing he does. I said, that's the only kind of thing I want, you know. We went along that way. And then he made a deal with um, Fox. And um, after a while, Fox said, uh, yeah, we don't want Pacino. He's too old. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. You know, I know he was 31, but he looked like 21. And uh, but they, they weren't looking at it that way. But uh, I, and I said to Dominic, I said, Dominic, the reason I'm doing this film is because I want to do it with Al. And he said, Okay, let's let's go through the charade of uh, casting, and then. Um, uh, tell them no, Al. It has to be Al. Al's the best one. So we did. We 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 went to a regular casting session. I read very good actors, including Robert De Niro. I said, and then we went back to to Fox and said, no, it's got to be Pacino. And finally, they gave in to it. Actually, Dominic had seen Kitty Wynn in San Francisco in a production company. In a repertory company, and uh, he said, uh, "You gotta come out. I want you to see this actress." So I flew out to California. We had lunch, and uh, it was Kitty Wynn. I, she was perfect for me of what I wanted. And then after we said, "That's who we're gonna cast for the um, the Helen," uh, they said, "Well, we, we're thinking more of uh, Mia Farrow." I said, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, she's a wonderful actress, but everybody's going to think of her divorcing Frank Sinatra. They couldn't care less about my film. I want an innocent girl from the Midwest. You know, and uh, so they finally relented, and uh, that's how we cast that one. And then to see the different performance of Pacino uh, in Scarecrow is just remarkable. I never would think of him as being... Uh, obviously, he's not you know fully comedic, but there are so many comedic moments for him, especially at the beginning of the film. The whole telephone conversation that he's doing to kind of win over um, Gene Hackman. Yeah, well, Al, Al has you know Al has, has great humor. You know, it's it's um, we we never if if them being an actor and taking on a role doesn't mean that's all they can do. You know. Uh, and uh, it'll say they were Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep is a fantastic comic, which we found out through the years. But uh, in her early work, like Holocaust, you don't know that. You know, you just know that she's a great actress. But uh, yeah, Al, and now we've seen Al's work for a number of years now. And, you know, he's a great actor. And uh, whether he brings his humor into it, because we all have that part of us. We all have our humor. We all have our serious moments. And uh, we just have to uh, dig down deep and pull it out. How did Scarecrow come together? And what was it like working with uh, Gary Michael White? I was brought into it. Uh, I came home one day and there was a script here for my agent, <clears throat> who was also Pacino's agent. I uh, got the... Um, script and I called my agent. I said, what is this? Uh, I knew about it because Al had been talking about it. It was a project he was on, he was working on. 
And uh, my agent said, just read it, you know, and then we'll talk. And so I read it, and um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I called him and I said, well, you know, what's the story? Does Al want me to read it and talk to him about it for, you know, I thought Al, as a friend, wanted me to, you know, give him some advice or, you know. So, uh, well, the problem is that um, both Hackman and Al are not happy with the director that's on the film. And uh, Al wanted you to read it. I said, well, okay, I like it a lot. So we left it at that. Uh, then uh, he arranged for me to go out and meet Hackman. And evidently Hackman was okay with it. They had to uh, make some arrangements so that this could work. Now, Al and I would walk in the streets and talk and uh, talk about scenes and come up with uh, some of the things we were going to do, some of the funny things, some of the serious things. But both of us were very guilty about um, the uh, idea of uh, of getting rid of the original director. I knew the original director. Uh, I knew him well. He's a good director. Uh, and I think it was really a personality thing that they, that they didn't like. They couldn't get along with him. They, uh, so, uh, but Al and I decided, well, maybe we should just not do it let's you know, so we I, I called um, the, our agent and told him what we were thinking and he got furious he said you like the script I said yes we like it then you just leave the rest to me you know and, and what he did he made some sort of arrangement and uh, and the other director left the film how much of it did you end up shooting in Detroit I think the majority of it was shot in Denver um, well, well, the first thing uh, I did uh, when uh, because uh, the uh, the other director had gotten rid of Gary Michael White, and uh, I liked the script, but I thought it needed work because you know everybody comes in and they want to do their own thing. So uh, I called Gary Michael White by in and I talked to him. And I told him what I was thinking of the script, and so we. Uh, he came on board again, and then we traveled across country together, and we talked about things. And uh, and then he came back, and he wrote scenes, and I wasn't too happy with what he had written. And uh, <clears throat> I told that to the producer, and he said, "Well, I have a friend," and he uh, mentioned his name. I said, "I know, I know him. I know his work." I said, "Yeah, let's let's talk to him," and we did. And uh, so he wrote. Uh, so he started writing uh, rewrites for the script. He started uh, plagiarizing the original script by changing from the color brown to the color blue. You know, it was this sort of um, really uh, not rewriting, not being original. The producer was saying, it's great, it's wonderful, I love it. And I said, I don't really love it. One day uh, we came into the office and I was going to go to lunch with him. And the... Uh, the new script had come in, and I told uh, Bruce, I really don't like it. My production manager came in. I said, I hear the new script is here. Can I read it? I said, yeah, Tommy, it's here. I'm going to lunch. Read it. While I'm at lunch, I want to talk to you about it. And when I came back from lunch, he was being very sheepish. And he's a big, tough Irishman. And he was being very sheepish. And uh, I said, what's the matter, Tommy? He says, well, uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm disappointed. I said, terrific, you know. I said because I really don't like it. 
So what I did, I reread Gary's work, and I realized that Gary overwrote. So we edited down Gary's original work, and it was starting to work, and you know, it starting to satisfy everybody. And then, uh, you know, you always change things with the actors, and, and I do anyhow, because uh, I think they should have the freedom of uh, of developing the character the way they can develop it. And you know, they're doing the character, and they have to bring their life experience to it. <laughs> so um, and that worked out just great. It was it was a good shoot. We we everybody enjoyed ourselves. Pretty much everybody enjoyed themselves. We all would uh, go to dailies at night, lots of wine and cheese and crackers and all that. And, you know, we had a few disagreements, which is normal for all films. And Al also hurt his leg on one one part of the trip, which we had put him in the hospital for a couple of days. It worked out. Uh, I um, I had a problem. At the end, it was, uh, well, uh, the um, the manager, who was now my manager, Al's manager, and he wanted to see the film, and so I, I showed it to him, and he said, well, it's not Al's film, it's Machia's Hackman's film. I said, no, you're wrong. I said, they're two different characters, and what Al does with his character is brilliant, what Gene does with his character is brilliant. He goes, oh, well, well, well. So he, I said, I said, even if you believe that, don't tell that to, to uh, Al. And he went right back and told it to Al. So Al came to see the film with that in his mind. And, uh, you know, all actors are very insecure. And so uh, we had a problem for a couple of years with that. And then uh, one day we ran into each other at a restaurant and hugged and kissed. And we've been hugging and kissing ever since. All the locations are real locations. So uh, what you what you see in the fountain, the fountain, and walking in the street, Salvation Army, and the telephone call that was in Detroit. Yeah, and when Hackman when Hackman talks about the film, he says one of his best experiences because we shot as much in continuity as we could. You know, and that's great for an actor because they know what they did yesterday and where they're coming from. I was so surprised by the performance of Richard Lynch, who I just oh, thought yeah. he was such a great actor, but he never really got his due. He just ended up playing so many heavies, well, and he was he's, so good. Yeah, he's his own worst enemy. Uh, I saw Richard uh, up in Boston. He was in a play with Al, and uh, I couldn't believe him. He played the, uh, in Pablo Hummel, where he plays a quadruple amputee and he was brilliant and at the end of the uh, of the play the curtain calls he walks out but keeps his hand his arms hidden so I, I, th- I said this guy must be uh, a wounded veteran he knows that character so well I was walking backstage with a friend of Al's Joe Clayberg and I said that actor he's so terrific I mean was he a, a a veteran, a wounded veteran, something, and she started laughing. When I got back there, he had four, uh, two legs and two arms, you know, it's just, he was such a good actor. And, uh, of course, he had his, uh, he was burned up in a, in a I think it was a, an LSD trip or something. He got, uh, in, uh, his 
and her face was all burned, and I really liked that character. I loved playing him as a homosexual. And I told them, uh, we'd have lunches every once in a while, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to use you. And he was so appreciative of everything, and then he came to, to, uh, let's see, I think he came to Denver, and uh, it was really such a pain in the ass. They put him in a room next to mine, and I, all I could hear is him screaming on the telephone to his girlfriend or his wife or somebody. And I made them move him because I couldn't get any sleep. But uh, then he and he kept saying, when do we do rehearsals? I said, we do rehearsals you know, when, we, when we get to the scene. He said, oh, the, the main rehearsals come at the beginning. But he wasn't in on those. And... Uh, and, you know, they come in for a week of shooting. You don't stop everything and have uh, team rehearsals. You know, you do it before the scenes. And he kept demanding things and all that. And uh, he got into trouble with Hackman uh, over um, girls or something. But I know Hackman hated him and uh, he really created a problem. But he was so good in his part. And then I did the scene with uh, he and Al the homosexual scene, I didn't realize he was actually hitting Al. And Al came after the, after the, uh, uh, we did the scene, he came to me, if that guy hits me once more, I'm leaving this film. He's drinking, he's, you know, I didn't know any of that. I said, I didn't know that. And, I said, and so I went and I, I grabbed uh, Lynch and I said, if I, if I have a hint that you're drinking, I'm going to take everything that we've done and I'm going to get another actor and redo everything. So he behaved himself that way, but uh, he was he was pretty naughty, but he was a wonderful actor. And he may, that, that may be the reason he didn't get anywhere, but of course his physical appearance doesn't allow him to get all the parts in the world, you know. Because he, he did burn up his face and all that. Now you, in very quick succession, did Puzzle and Panic and Scarecrow, and then it took a few years before Sweet Revenge came out. What was I mean, the story with that? I think it took three years between the two films. Uh, yeah, well, uh, that was my fault. I took a deal, well, mine and my agents, I took a deal with Warner Brothers to develop my next film with them. And so I, I had a two-year contract with them, and what I developed, they didn't like. And so I wasn't doing anything. And, and if I were going to do another film, they had to have first refusal. So I, I locked myself in. It was really bad uh, because... Uh, Scarecrow had won the Golden Palm. Uh, I could have gotten many, many choices, and things were sent to me, but Warner Brothers had first refusal on everything. So I didn't do anything then. And, you know, if you don't work, they figure you're finished. And uh, Sweet Revenge was not my idea of a great, great script, but I wanted to work. I wanted to get back onto it. And uh, I did that. Um, I thought it was a good B movie. I thought Stockard was fantastic. You know, you know, I've got I've got periods where, first of all, I don't. Uh, I'm I'm very tough on myself, and I don't accept many things. I didn't accept many things, so I did turn down projects. I worked on projects. You know, I'm going through my papers now because we're sending them to Harvard, and I see all the films that I've worked on that never came to fruition because, you know, we'd work on a screenplay and it wouldn't work or the, they couldn't get the money for it. Or because some of my choices were a little eclectic. 
you know, like right after uh, uh, Panic, for Fox wanted to go on another film right away, and I wanted to do uh, Nathaniel West's A Cool Million. I don't know if you know it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so uh, they didn't know it, but they they would have gone into anything. And when they got the screenplay, I did the screenplay with Terry Southern. And when they got the screenplay, they couldn't believe what the, what I had spent all this time doing, and they absolutely turned it around. You know, they 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 didn't want it at all. But you know, that's so so partly uh, you know my career is partly. Uh, my problem, partly the fact that stuff I chose couldn't get financed or we couldn't get a good script. And sometimes I'd work um, two, three years, but work on three, four, five projects that don't get on. I wanted to know about the uh, sequel to Scarecrow. I've got a sequel. I love it, but uh, it won't get on because uh, one, uh, Hackman is retired and uh, I can't even get him to read it. I, I gave it to Al, and Al was a little annoyed that I gave him a script uh, directly because uh puts a, a, a commitment on him. He's got to come back with an answer, but he gave it to his uh, assistant, who I think read it and liked it, but Al has had financial problems, and so he goes, that's film after film after film now, and uh, I haven't even talked about it. I, you know, I've thought of another actor to replace um, uh, Hackman, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think anything will happen with it. You know, it, it's a good story, uh, and and uh, we, uh, as far as uh, um, the Pacino character, he thinks his son is dead. But, but he's going to find out that his son is alive and his son is in trouble because he's, he's working with some criminals. And uh, you know, it, it's really a good story. But I, I don't know what, you know, I can't do anything with it. And I thought of changing the whole cast and doing it. It's it's a good enough film that I could do it without even referring to um, Scarecrow, except there are certain things. You know, it's 30 years later and they, they own this great, their car wash, they win all sorts of awards. Actually, that's how uh, his former wife found him because she read about his um, winning awards for the way they clean cars. And uh, <laughs> it's it's funny and it's it's again touching. But um, and I would love to do it, but uh, you know you can only do what you can do. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Schatzberg. This was wonderful talking with you. Oh, great. Okay, I hope you got what you want. Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah, and I uh, really appreciate your time, and, and thanks again for all the candor. It was great. Okay. You uh, are in Silicon Valley, and you grew up in that area as well? No, no. I grew up, I, I was born in Los Angeles. <clears throat> grew up in there. My father was a musician with the Hollywood orchestras. Okay, so you were kind of in the thick of it when it comes to the entertainment business, son. Well, I, you know, it was strange. I was just a little kid, and my parents, you know, separated when I was like three, and I was raised by my dad, and he was in the studio orchestras. He played, you know, with NBC and CBS, and he did movie um, things, and occasionally he would take me to the radio because this was there was this was before television, uh, although he went on to become a television 
player. Uh, he played in the orchestra for I Love Lucy and things like that. But in the 40s, you know, when I was born, he was in radio. And so I went to the CBS radio studio with him occasionally, and I got to see wonderful radio shows which were, which were performed live across country. So if it was 6 o'clock when it went on the air or 7 o'clock when it went on the air in California, it was 10 o'clock your time, and it was being heard by everybody across the country at the same moment. And I watched, you know, Richard Widmark and Barbara Stanwyck standing in front of microphones holding their scripts. I had no idea who they were, but I knew that what I was watching was uh, phenomenal. I, I was absolutely hooked by it. And then he left that business after a while, and, and we actually became a psychotherapist. And I lost track of it entirely, that whole business. I, I, in my teen years, I had nothing at all to do with any of that, and came back quite by accident, really, to um, Hollywood much later when I was 28. But in the meantime, I'd fallen in love with the theater, and so I was legitimate theater, not Hollywood. And I was, uh, I was acting, I was directing, I was going through schools and doing all that, and then finally writing plays. Well, how did you decide, I want to be a writer and I want to be a playwright? It was a matter of control. When I realized I really loved the theater, I was about 13 years old. It was like a Christmas pageant at junior high. And I saw all the people working behind stage. And as, as I said, I, I didn't really have a home. So, and this is true of so many people in the theater. They make the theater their home because they didn't have one. And I can't tell you how often that's the case. People who are outcasts roll down a sloped floor and end up in the theater. And that's their home. And that's the way I felt about it. And, and so I pursued what everybody does. You know, oh, I'm going to be on stage and be an actor. And then um, I, I lucked out. And I got into um, uh, my wonderful stepmother, Fran Burnett, got me into a summer program at the La Jolla Playhouse near San Diego which was taught by a teacher named John Ulmer, who was part of the Sanford Meisner uh, School in um, New York. And the whole purpose of that was improvisation. All you did, you spent the whole summer improvising. And not, not acting from a script, but learning basically how to go from moment to moment truth, as they say. And that gave me the principles of playwriting, which I didn't know at the time I was, I was absorbing. The most important thing, in my opinion, to writing, whether it's film or plays, but particularly plays, is to know what the characters want and how they pursue their objectives, and then to create the obstacles to the achievement of those objectives, which is what a drama is. Drama is conflict. And so I had that whole, by the time I entered San Francisco State College, it's now called San Francisco State University, I had already developed a, a skill set of knowing how characters pursued their objectives. And so when I entered in the drama department there, I brought that to work, and I started as a director. After I did some acting, I began to direct. And then I found that directing also didn't give me enough of the control I wanted. And so I wrote my first play and submitted it to um, a, a faculty approval group, and they said, yes, we'll approve it for production. And, and it went up on stage, and that was my, my first experience as a playwright. So that was how I entered into <clears throat> that. Then I, and then I went to the Goodman Institute in Chicago, and that's a whole different story, but I left that before getting my Master of Fine Arts. I, I realized academia was never going to be a good fit for me. 
went into Mexico and I wrote my next play in Mexico, just, you know, really homeless in Mexico. And came back north, found myself directing another play, working at the Oceanside Playhouse, and got married, had a son, realized I had to get serious about a career of some sort. And so I went into the playwrights unit at UCLA. And I wrote a play while I was in that unit, submitted it to the Samuel Goldwyn competition, and it won, it placed, you know, second. And that changed everything because now suddenly I had Hollywood agents uh, pursuing me because it was written up in Variety, that the, the three winners were written up in Variety and the Hollywood Reporter and whatever. And so agents, you know, found out where we were. I didn't have a telephone. I didn't, I was living on, on the beach in a little studio. And one agent named Lee Rosenberg slipped a note under my door saying, please call me with his number on it and a Beverly Hills address. So I did, and I signed with him. And at the same time, that that play, which had won the award, was produced at UCLA and then went on to be picked up and produced at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. So I was suddenly getting some momentum. And Lee said, look, let's use this momentum and get you where you really belong, which is making a living in in film, because, you, you know, I don't need to tell you, you're not going to make much of a living writing plays, and you'll end up having to teach, which is, you told me you don't want to do. He said, so let's get you moving in the film. So he got me signed up with a, a director named Arnold Laven, who was part of a company called Levy Gardner and Laven, and they were located at um, MGM lot. So suddenly there I was at 28, walking through the gates of the MGM lot as a writer, as a writer for hire and, and a member of the Writers Guild. And that was the beginning of, of that era for me. A lot of it is pure luck. You know, if I, if I hadn't gotten married when I did, if I hadn't had a son to support, if I hadn't gone into the playwrights unit at UCLA, if I hadn't seen that sign on a post saying Samuel Golden, you know, competition, and if I hadn't managed to write a play in like two weeks and get it into them on, by deadline, I mean, none of that would have happened. At least it wouldn't have happened that way. I was launched. Now, I see that one of your questions was, how did I come to write Scarecrow? And the answer to that is that as soon as I finished working for Arnold Lavin, and the script was assigned to United Artists, uh, I was finished. My job was done, and I was uncommitted to anything. Yeah, but I had a few dollars in my pocket. And so I said, I think I'll write a script on spec. And I thought back on things that interested me. And I remembered when I was hitchhiking across the country that I'd come to a crossroads, probably somewhere in Arizona or West Texas. And I was standing there waiting for a ride to come by, hopefully. And a guy, a real down tramp kind of guy with a big cardboard suitcase came up and he stood in front of me so that he, that the traffic would come by him first. And I said, wait, wait, you know, hold on. I was here first. So if you're going to go in this direction, um, stand behind me. And he looked and he says, do you have to go east? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay. And he walked across the highway and started hitchhiking north. And so it appeared, it was clear to me, he didn't care which direction he was going and I, so I, I was in those days, I was keeping a notebook in my pocket. So I scribbled that down and that was the opening shot. And it still is the opening shot of that film. I wrote about two guys meeting just like that in a crossroads on a highway in, in the middle of nowhere. 
But instead of separating and going their separate ways, as he and I did, they they decide to, to go in the same direction. And they're both in search of something. And they both have huge holes in their spirits, which need filling. And that's how, that was the genesis of that, of that story. And I wrote it, um, I don't know, three or four months. And then came the, what I call the Scarecrow Saga, which is, I gave it to Lee. First, I gave it to Arnold Levin. He said, well, this is very lovely writing, but I don't know what we could do with it here at Levy Gardner Levin. It's not our kind of thing. Which turned out to be a mantra that was repeated all over Hollywood when Lee sent it out. Well, we like it, but it's not for us. Well, 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 we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't. So it was dead. Now, I've never been able to be absolutely sure that this is the way it happened, but I, I was working with an actor friend of mine named Anthony Zerby, who was in my play production at the Mark Tabor Forum, and that's how we met. And he hired me to do a couple of low-budget scripts for him, which I, which I did, and we became really good friends. And I gave him Scarecrow because I thought he would be good for the role of Max, the tougher of the two guys. And and he loved it, and he said, let me let me run with this and see what I can do with it. And I said, please do, because my agent's getting nowhere with it. So he gave it to a comedian named David Steinberg, who, who really liked it, wanted to play the other guy, Lion. So there it was, Anthony Zerby, David Steinberg. I said, hey, this will make a great low-budget film. You know, let's, let's get the money up. Well, this, by that time, the, mo- the script was circulating. It was in hands. And somehow it got to Al Pacino, who had just finished shooting The Godfather. And suddenly his whole future was wide open. And he read it. He said, I want to do this for my next film. This is as far away from the gangster thing as possible. This is what I want to do. I love this character. I want to meet the writer. So then we go through the whole Hollywood dance, which I tried to, you know, make it as simple as possible. I said, let's, you know, let's, so by that time, the, the, the script suddenly then got optioned. It got optioned by, um, interestingly enough, Sanford Productions, which was named after Sanford Meisner, the acting teacher in New York, whose teacher I worked with when I was 17 years old at La Jolla Playhouse, which means nothing except coincidences happen. So it was optioned, and that was Sidney Pollack. And he wasn't going to direct it, but he thought he might want to produce it. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't know what we're doing here. Because he says, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We've got Gene Hackman on board. So now you've got two of the hottest stars in Hollywood. So make up your mind what, what you're going to do, because we'll tell you what we're going to do. And suddenly that ball was rolling big. And then came, I'm going to be delicate here, because I don't want to name this director. I'll call him D.W. Griffith, because we all know we don't like D.W. Griffith. This guy was assigned to direct Scarecrow. And he called me into his office. And he said, okay, we're going to do a rewrite. And the big question is, are you the guy for the rewrite or not? He said, here's how I see this film being. And he described a film that couldn't be more unlike my script if he had tried. I was thunderstruck. Now, here's something to remember. The people that are listening to your podcast should know this. When you write a play, you own it. When a theater decides to do your play, they're renting it. They can not change anything without your permission. Nothing at all. Not a word. And if an actor starts improvising, you can shut the place down. That's not true with a film script. Once a studio 
puts their money into a film script, they can do whatever they want with it if they've bought it. And that's what had happened with Scarecrow. They had purchased it. So that was, a, that was the new law of gravity that I was introduced to. D.W. Griffith could do whatever he wanted to my script. And if I wasn't the guy for it, then he could hire what Gore Vidal calls old wise hack to come on in and, and do the script for me. And that's exactly what D.W. Griffith said he was going to do. I was dismissed. I was told to go on to my next project and to wait to see what my film looked like when it came out. So I was, I can't tell you how crushed I was. And I, whoever I complained to, they, the answer was always the same, welcome to Hollywood. So here's what happened. And this is why I will forever hold Al Pacino in hero status. Al Pacino was doing Richard III in Boston on the stage. He's a very good actor. And he keeps his muscles really firm as an actor by doing stage work, which is what very few Hollywood stars do. So D.W. Griffith got on a plane, and he flew to Boston. And he went to the theater, and he sat in the dressing room, and he waited for Mr. Pacino to finish his performance. And he introduced himself, and he said, I'm producing the film, that you're, the next film you're starring in, and here's what we're going to do. It's going to be a much, much more commercial project, trust me. And Al listened to him and said, okay, thanks a lot. That's, that's interesting to hear. And D.W. Griffith got up, went back to the airport, got a plane back to Hollywood. By the time he got to Hollywood, he was fired. Al Pacino got on the phone and said, if this guy stays in the project, I'm gone. I'm finished. He said, I want the script that I read. I want to play that character. And this will get to your other question that you have. I want that ending. I don't want a happy ending. I want that ending. That's my character's destiny, that ending. So, of course, at that time, the Godfather was making box office history and and Gene Hagma was saying, I agree. You know, you don't mess with it. This is our this is a story of friendship. And it's a story of people with two weaknesses making each other stronger. Don't mess with it. So D.W. Griffith was gone. So right away they asked Al who he wanted to direct. He said, Well I've already done Panic and Needle Park with Jerry Schatzberg. It was his first film. And he said, that's who I want to come in and do this. So they contacted Jerry and sent him the script. And Jerry said, I'm on. I'm on board with this. Let's do it. So then I met with Jerry and, and everything was green-lighted and, and went forward. And um, Al Pacino wanted to stay in contact with me. And he wanted to pick my brains because as he was developing his take on that character, he would run by questions. He'd come by, he'd call me and say, what about this? What do you think of this? And I'd say, that's a great idea. Or especially the comic bits, because I had written certain things. And he said, no, I, I'm not good at doing it. He said, I want to do, he said that you, you're doing Charlie Chaplin here. I like Charlie Chaplin. I want to do Charlie Chaplin. But I don't want to do, you know, slapstick. So, or he'd call and say, I've got an idea of him with a portable radio, you know, always on. And I said, no, that's, that's not a good idea. I said, the, the thing about Lion is he's out of touch with reality. He's out of touch with the world. He's Rip Van Winkle. He, he, he's waking up, and it's a different world. And if he's listening to the radio all the time, then he's clued in. And he says, oh, God, he says, you're right. You're absolutely right. Forget the radio. So I was, I was connected in that sense. And also, Jerry and Tom Shaw, the production designer, and myself got in a car, and we drove the trek that the two guys make. We started in California, and we ended up in Detroit. And 
I was, my job was to, um, Jerry was looking all the time for scenic things that he was going to shoot. And my job was to talk out with them the changes that the, the passing scenery might suggest to me that we could incorporate into the script. So it was very organic and very good. And, and as an imp, a guy who values improvisation, I, I really thought it was very healthy to be doing all this because Jerry had decided he was going to shoot it in sequence, which is another very rare thing in, in filming. They almost never shoot in sequence. Because they can't afford to. They have to stay on one set as long as they can and change makeup, change costumes, but stay on that set until you move to another set. And that's, those, those set pieces might be very spaced out parts of the story. So that was that. I was, that was my, uh, my involvement. Basically, then I went to Ireland with my wife and drifted around Ireland for a month or two and while they were shooting that film. And I stayed away from it. With the exception of I showed up for uh, one night of shooting when they were in uh, Reno. And I got to meet uh, Eileen Brennan, who was wonderful. And I got to pal around with everybody for a night. And it was my, you know, it was my... I don't know, busman's holiday. You know, I, I wasn't working. I was just there to enjoy it, and I was welcomed in. But, you know, directors, both on stage and in film, really don't want writers around. Directors in stage will have you sit in the back of the theater and watch rehearsals and take notes, but don't talk to them. Don't get up and, and intrude. And by all means, never talk to the actors. And film directors are even worse Film directors, well, you have to understand what the pressure they're under. I don't, most people don't really get it. Every day they have to show footage to money people who have no interest in the art of filmmaking. They only want to see what it looks like and how the actors are looking and what the performances feel like. And every day a director has to have that moment where he shows the people who can take the cameras away what he or she's done. Hard, hard thing, especially when you're working with two of the hottest stars in Hollywood and a script that is iffy. It doesn't have car chases, blah, blah, blah. Very tough. And and Jerry was a true gentleman. He always was that. But it was also very clear to me that the sooner I got lost, the better. So he could get on with it and and just deal with his the job he had in front of him. So I did. I, I got out of there, and I had nothing more to do with it until um, until they showed the uh, had a screening. Um, and I, I saw it with a, with a big audience, uh, a private screening. That was my first time to see the full the full thing put together. Now, here's the thing about filmmaking. Another thing, the distributors work with the producers to decide how many showings per day of the film they want to they want to have. Obviously, that makes a difference in the box office total. If you got 10 showings a day, you make more than if you got seven showings a day. And in order for Scarecrow to get the amount of showings per day, because they were going to release it worldwide, huge, big opening. And they wanted as many people to come in as fast as possible. So the film had to be shortened from Jerry's, the, the cut that he had given to the studio. They, they said it's got to be shortened. And I was not consulted at all in that process. And I, that is my big complaint. Because they cut, what they cut were two elements in the script which really made Lion's ultimate psychic collapse clear. 
and and they got rid of it because they didn't understand. Whoever made that choice didn't understand the internal workings of that script, which had worked very hard to make sure we're in place and we're clicking. So when I saw the film, and a lot of the people that saw it with me agreed, there was something jarring about the collapse of Al Pacino's character. It was it was a little more precipitate than it should have been, and it made the ending feel uh, more down than it should have been. It should have been a feeling of this was going to happen. Thank God it happened when he had made this friendship with Max. Thank God for that, because this was coming for him. And because it didn't have that feeling of Greek inevitability to it, a lot of people and many critics criticized the film for being unnecessarily pessimistic. And if anything, it's not. If anything, it's a story of how friendship can redeem past sins in your life and how by facing up to what you've done, you become stronger for it, even if, as Hemingway says, where you break, when you heal, you're stronger there. So that was my, that was, and by the time I complained to it, I went to Bob Sherman, who was the producer, and I said, you know, what have you done? And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing that you can do about it, so why don't you just shut up and hope that it makes money and then get on with your life? And that was basically the end of that. What were those two scenes? One was in a train station, and Lion is drunk, and he's in a, he's in a toilet stall, and he won't come out. And Max has gone into the train station and gone to the information kiosk. And he's dressed the way he's dressing and asking the questions he's asking. The clerk sizes him up for what he's doing. And after he gives him all the information he wants, he says, sir, that, those are passenger trains. <laughs> if it's freight trains, it's an entirely different schedule. And he gives him a whole different schedule, which is a very funny moment. And that was cut. So Max is feeling really good that this guy was kind to him. Max, who's never been trusting of anybody, goes into the bathroom to tell Lion, guess what just happened to me? A guy entrusted me with something. And Lion is going, I can't come out of this toilet stall. I can't go to Detroit. I can't, I can't do it. I'm afraid. And Max has to say, you, you, you can't just stay here. We've got to get going. Look, I got the freight train schedule. This is where we, we got to get going. And so he, he urges him on. And then the scene that they do still have when, when Matt, just before Linus make the telephone call to his wife, Annie, he chickens out again. And Max once again says, no, you can go through with this. You can do it. So the fact that there were two times when Lion says, I'm scared to death of what's coming for me. It feels ominous. I'm, I'm really scared. This guy that's always kept the world at bay by making it laugh. I mean, that's the whole point of the title, right? Scarecrow's don't scare crows, they make them laugh. And then they, the crows say, oh, we'll leave that field alone because that guy makes us laugh with that funny doll. So you've really established that Lion, something really bad is coming for him. And it's just a question of how it's going to hit. And then when his wife... Now, so the wife tells him that the son died and can't go to heaven. So that means Lion's Catholicism is really important. And when I was designing Scarecrow, there was something else that it, it, it worked its way into my first play, and now I wanted to do it again. I was raised a Catholic. And it, by the time I was a teenager, I was pretty appalled by that church. I said, you know, there's something wrong with everything being based on sin and redemption, 
original sin, acquired sin, mortal sin, venal sin, and he's priest, you know, offering benediction to you. If you confess, if you go into a booth and, and tell your darkest, most shameful secrets to a stranger, that's supposed to be good for you. And, I, and by the time I tell you, by the time I was 14, 15, I said, this is, really sucks. I don't like this. And when I was, became a writer, I said, I'm going to write about this. So I gave Lyon that problem, a problem of terror, not just because of, <clears throat> not just because of as represented by the lamp he's carrying, which is that he doesn't know that his child is even a boy or a girl, not because he was just irresponsible and, and, and fled like a coward away from the responsibilities of fatherhood, but he also violated his religion. And Annie knows this. She knows it. She's Catholic, too. So she tells him, your son is in, is in purgatory because he wasn't baptized. And that breaks the spine of Lyon's character. And that was what, and even I didn't see it coming until I wrote it. As soon as I wrote it, I said, aha, that's it. Now I, can, now I can really have him blank out. Now I can put him in a psych ward. It's interesting because a few years, I have, I'm sure I had nothing to do with it at all, but it's, you know, it's again a coincidence. A few years after Scarecrow came out, the Catholic Church abandoned that dogma of being uh, children be, that are unbaptized not being able to go to heaven. Some, some, one of the popes, I forget which one, said, well, that's, that's over. We're not going to do that anymore. So in that sense, Scarecrow is now an interesting historic piece because it still uh, has a piece of Catholic dogma in it, which has now you know, been disowned. Being a, a Detroiter, you know, it was great to see Belle Isle in the film. Had you been to Belle Isle before? I, I don't imagine you'd chosen Detroit arbitrarily to end your play, to end your screenplay. I chose uh, Detroit because that was where um, they were on their way to Pittsburgh. And, but that's where, but I, I chose Detroit because that's where Lyon was born and raised. I, I, just had, to, I had to give him a place of birth. And his name is Lionel Del Buki, Francis Lionel Del Buki. He's Italian. And I said, you know, he's Polish, Italian, he's Detroit. Detroit's a really good city for, for him to come from. So they have to go to Detroit so he can give his child the lamp and, and, and try to make amends with his wife before they go on to Pittsburgh, which is where Max is from. And I was talking to my stepdad, who was from Detroit, and I said, you know, I want to go someplace in Detroit to end this, and I don't want it to be a dingy ending. I want it to have someplace that, that the camera's going to like. And he says, oh, you want Belle Isle. I said, what's that? And he says, oh, yeah. He says, he says we'll get some pictures of it. Go to the library. When this is long before the Internet. So I did, and I saw the fountain, and I saw oh, it's had perfect. This is perfect, absolutely perfect. So I, that's how Belle Isle came to be. So what did Scarecrow end up doing for you in your career Oh, it was big. Once I had a film made with two stars, and, and, and every time Gene Hackman went on television, every time he'd say my, and throughout his career, I mean, way toward the end, before he, just before he retired, he was still saying Scarecrow's my favorite film of all the ones I've done, including the conversation, you know, really wonderful stuff he did, Unforgiven, stuff he won Academy Awards for. He, he said Scarecrow was his favorite film. And I was in demand. I had a lot of offers, and I turned most of them down because a lot of them were remakes of Scarecrow of one form or another. And uh, But Fred Weintraub got a hold of me, and he said, 
you want to do something entirely different, I got one for you. He said, I want to do a remake of um, Random Harvest. He said, I want to do a remake of Random Harvest, a, re- a revision of it. And we worked it out. And I said, you know, that sounds like a lot of fun. And it turned out to be quite a bit of fun. I got a chance to just really write Escape Us. Now, here's a funny anecdote to that. Once the script was finished and Universal said, we'll, 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 we'll produce it, but we want to do a novelization of it. All right, so I put my hand eagerly in the air and said, let me do it, let me do it. And they said, no, we have somebody on board that we think would be really good for this, and she's going to be doing her first big novel with this one, and it was Danielle Steele. So they brought her on board, and she took my screenplay and adapted it and made a novel out of it. Now, the beautiful thing about this is, although it's not so beautiful for Fred, the film didn't really do very well commercially, but the novel went on the bestseller list at the New York Times and stayed there and was in print for decades. And I had a piece of of that novel (laughs) because I wrote the original screenplay it was based on. So I, I had this wonderful, lucrative windfall of money from the promise that the filmmakers didn't get. And that that is really unusual Hollywood story, let me tell you. But Fred was always good-natured about that. He said, hey, you know, you got lucky. What's wrong with that? But don't forget, we gave you your luck. We all, we, get, we granted you that percentage of the book. And Gil Cates was the director on that, and, I, and he was my choice, um, I'm happy to say. I had seen... Um, they were looking for a director, and James Bridges, I think, had just said, no, he's not available, or, or he didn't want to do it, I forget. And they were looking around for a director that they could afford and who would have the right sensibility. And I'd seen I Never Sang for My Father. I said, that is a wonderful movie. And, and not just because it has Gene Hackman in it. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, Estelle Parsons, Melvin Douglas. It's really a wonderful film. And I said, what about that director? And they said, that's Gilbert Cates. And I said, well, why don't you see if he's available? And he was. And so he, he took the job. And he's a wonderful guy. <clears throat> After that, um, and I did, uh, I did, I came on in as a, as a co-writer of a film called Skyriders. And, you know, crazy Hollywood stunt film, hang gliding, shoot him up, James Coburn. And then I found myself um, being offered some nice stuff for television. And I want to make, mention a name as long as we're on this podcast. The name is Phil Mandelker. And he was a producer for television, but he was also a man of the theater. Very, very sensitive, intelligent. And he was really trying to lift the quality of television with his partner, Len Hill. And they hired me, and I did a um, a script for them about a New York graffiti artist who graffitis subways. And I got to know Phil, and I gave him my uh, new play that I'd written. And he said, I love this play. I, I want to really talk to you about it. Then I went on to other things, and he, he and his part, and Len were very busy with things. And then he got sick and died. And, and that was terrible. I, I felt like I'd made a friend of the theater with somebody who was really in the Hollywood echelon, and then he was gone. And there was really nobody else that I had that feeling about at all in Hollywood, with the exception of Anthony Zerbe, but He's an actor, not a, not a director, not a producer. I forgot I was going to mention this, too. There's a director named E.B. Hughes. He works out of New Jersey. 
He's done three independent films now. And he contacted me through my website years ago and said, could I sit down with you sometime and, and get your input? He says, I love Scarecrow. I've seen it 20 times. I really want to talk to you. And I said, well, sure, absolutely. So I was in New York um, for a musical that I was writing the libretto to. And Eric came up from New Jersey and we met. And he's a wonderful, super guy. And he is one of these amazing guys who writes his own script, goes out and gets financing, casts it, directs it, hires an editor up in New York, and then gets distribution. And then goes to film, goes to the film um, competitions and wins prizes. I've never known anybody that does that. I mean, today, this, this once upon a time, Martin Scorsese did that, that kind of thing, Francis Coppola. But today, in this corporate world, Eric still works on those rules and gets away with it. As I w- I've been working for over two years now on, on a play called The Imperial Liars Club, which is a very difficult play, but it's going to be a good one, I think. And as I was getting around the home turn of it a few months ago, I came up with an idea for a film script, which I have not written in a, way over a decade. And I, and I called Eric. I said, Eric, I got an idea for a movie, but I do not and I will not go through the Hollywood process. I'm finished with it. I'm retired. I'm not going to do it again. I don't want an agent. I don't want anything to do with any of that. Can you and I talk about a seat of the pants movie, just the two of us working from, from this idea? And I gave him the idea. And he said, count me in. Let's do it. So I said, let's plan for this as soon as you finish your, the current film he's working on, which is in the editing process now. And as soon as I finish uh, this play, which should be in July or August. And so that's, that's what's next on the agenda for me, is working with Eric Hughes on this new play, which is, gonna, which is this movie which I'm calling Blood Draw. And we'll see what comes of it. I'll let you know, and maybe you can help us publicize it. But that's, let's see. Oh, so what I'm working on now is that play. Um, my other play is called The Girl Who Was the Son, and that was uh, one that, um, it was a runner-up in the Eugene O'Neill um, competition. It and two other plays are available on my website. Anybody who wants to contact my website just has to go to www.gary, with two R's, michaelwhiteplays.com. And uh, the whole thing will come up and you'll see what I've got in the works and what I've got available and what I've done in the past. I wanted to ask you about the uh, stage adaptation of Scarecrow, how that came about. Uh, Shiloh Fernandez and uh, Noah Segan, they called me. They're actors, and they're very, very busy actors, Hollywood actors, not, not, not theater. They called me and said, we both are huge fans of this, and we would like to do a stage adaptation. Would you be interested in letting us do that. You don't have to do anything. We will try our hand at it, but we need your permission. And I said, you'll have to get the permission of Warner Brothers because I, once again, I don't own that script that Warner Brothers bought. So they said, well, would you please ask for us? And I did. And Warner Brothers said, yeah, we don't care. Just make sure we get a part of the profit if it makes any money. And I said, well, I'll send you a, a contract to that effect. And I did. And 
that was all put aside and done. And so Noah and Shiloh uh, did the script. They sent it to me. I said, let me try my hand at doing some fixes because I know playwriting, obviously, a little better than you guys. So I I went to work on it, and they were very happy. And then, as things happen, their very busy careers took them far apart. And one went to Australia, and one went to, I don't know, Germany. And and they just got so involved that they lost track of what their passion for Scarecrow. So it um, sort of just died on the vine. But I do have the script, and um, it's available also on my website if anybody wants to, uh, to read it. So thank you very much for your interest in this. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate your time today. It was a real pleasure talking with you. I mean, he made a string of great movies, and he and he discovered a lot of talent. And if, if not discovered them, I mean, he gave them early roles that really helped to define them. Uh, I mean, from Pacino to to uh, uh, I mean Morgan Freeman, he did Street Smart, right? And that that was yeah. early, really great role for Freeman. And and then you look at his career before he started making movies. You look at the Blonde on Blonde album cover, or I think that's the Bob Dylan album cover. I mean, just like legendary work. He his work is hanging in galleries, culture defining work. I mean, what an extraordinary talent he he was. Yeah, I enjoyed talking about Puzzle of a Downfall Child with Mike last year, and that's a film that still has not come out on home video in America, strangely, even though there's a good French Blu-ray. But it's like, yeah, I don't know what, what needs to happen for his career to be better appreciated in this country. But even Scarecrow wasn't, uh, it's got a Blu-ray, but it's not, uh, you know, it isn't given the red carpet treatment that it deserves as far as uh, the new Hollywood. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Scarecrow. Now you guys can talk. While we're off the microphone, you can't talk about the movie. Now you can talk about the movie. So let's talk about the restoration, the proper release of this film, because you said there is no Blu-ray of this. I wish that there was a Blu-ray, and I wish that some of these deleted scenes were out there, because doing the research, you know, Jamie, you talked to Gary Michael White, and he talked about those those kind of missing bits that we were discussing earlier. And then even in uh, a biography of Pacino that I was reading, he says that it was, this film was one of the saddest experiences of his career because of things that were deleted. And he said that they were in a rush and they came in under budget and 17 days early, which is really unheard of. So I, I'm, I wish that, and I don't know if these scenes even exist, but I would hope that there are these things. They don't have to integrate them back in the film. The movie that came out, that won the Palm d'Or, that's the, that's the movie that we should be seeing. But I would be interested in seeing more, and I would be interested in getting a really proper release of this movie, because I think it deserves a little bit more respect than it got. Well, just to clarify, there is a Blu-ray of Scarecrow. Uh, there is a Blu-ray through uh, Warner Archive, I think, put out like a Blu-ray of it. But it's um, it's a port of the um, in terms of there's no there's no contextualizing supplements. There's a uh, like a, a three minute featurette that was shot on the location. That's like a uh, like a promo piece. But um, there's no there's no deleted scenes or uh, retrospective commentaries or documentaries. It isn't um, given any context besides you know just the film itself is presented. Um, but it's still, yeah. This movie deserves so much more, especially since you have the, the, the only meeting of these two acting Titans. 
uh, I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that, that that they haven't invested more in it. And I don't know if they can't find the elements uh, to to do any extras beyond this. But I mean, Schatzberg Schatzberg is available. You can do a commentary. You can you can give it some love for for uh, to encourage people to take this movie more seriously. This movie was not very well liked in America. I dug up uh, reviews by Stephen Farber in the New York Times and Judith Christ over in the New York Magazine, and neither one of them seemed really too hot on this, um, which was kind of sad. They both talked about how beautiful it looked, but they didn't really, they weren't too hot on it. So it's not. You know, that it didn't bode well when it came to some of the other reviews for this. They were calling it things like a low grade midnight cowboy. And I can kind of see like midnight cowboy esque things that it's talking about male friendship and stuff. But, you know, I, I it was like, um, let's see, Stephen Farber was saying that, uh, uh, it's a much close, clumsier film than Midnight Cowboy. Um, the minor characters in Scarecrow are more crudely drawn characters, caricatures of hicks and sluts, while the visual details caught by the camera are the cliches an urban outsider would pick out. A bucket of Kentucky fried chicken, the frying pan bubbling over with grease, the cluttered, weedy backyard, the girl with the pink curlers in her hair, and a crucifix on the wall. See, I think that all of those things actually really work in this film's favor. And when you think of the frying pan and Frenchie trying to make the dinner and then going out and flirting with Max and forgetting about the dinner and then, you know, them cutting to that bucket of fried chicken on the table. That's a really nice moment in the film, you know, in talking about, uh, I mentioned Annie with the curlers in her hair and it's like, yeah, all of these things actually make sense to the film and they're kind of integral to it. it I didn't feel like this was somebody putting, hicks and sluts under the microscope or using them as background characters. I thought that this was actually a very well done way of putting it out there. I don't know. I think it has great affection for its characters. I don't think it, uh, I don't think it belittles them at all. Really. I, I think that, uh, they find great emotion in, in, in the characters. Uh, I think they find some of the character traits charming and enchanting and, uh, I, it just, it just, it just never set out to be as provocative as something like a midnight cowboy. Uh, so, I, I, so I don't, I don't subscribe to that, uh, that criticism. I think it's just, uh, you know, and and that that shadowed Pacino a lot too, especially in the eyes of Pauline Kael, that Pacino was a lower rent Dustin Hoffman. Uh, and so, so here's another movie that's comparing Pacino unfavorably with a Dustin Hoffman movie. I don't think their aims were the same at all. It's not even a comparison I really thought of, other than the um, the, the, the male friendship of, of characters that are like struggling, you know, just like slightly above total poverty. I mean, it's a buddy, it's a dark buddy film, I guess, on the, along those lines. But I mean, the the worlds they take place in feels so far removed that it's just a very superficial kind of connection the two films have uh, i think but and i don't i don't i agree that i don't think that the film scarecrow condescends to the characters in any way i did i mean i, th- I think if anything it's you know it feels a little bit more sophisticated than than midnight cowboy but if for me the movie midnight cowboy feels a lot more psychedelic 
to me. And in contrast, Scarecrow feels almost more uh, like a Malik. Uh, like you get, um, you get almost like a more poetic feeling for the environment and the space that they occupy than something like Midnight Cowboy. They both come at the time of the counterculture in Vietnam, but they both seem um, like pointedly uh, outside the whole hippie thing. I mean, I was thinking about the scene where they get a ride from the uh, the hippie family with the with the crying babies, and I think that kind of underlines their disconnect from that type of bohemia. That they are also bohemians, but they are they're closer to the beats, like they're closer to Kerouac. Even though I know that uh, Gary Michael White had said that he was not trying to do on the road in any way with Scarecrow, but it, it reminds me more of that, like that kind of um, that slightly earlier type of of. Uh, drifter than what you would get in the uh you know the 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 love generation i think you know i was thinking about like um vietnam also because there's like some line about um when the native americans dropped them off and like you know that, that's why they lost the war no one can understand them i was like look i was trying to see if there was any references to um to that but those characters Either because they're adrift at sea or because they were in prison, are they? They don't even know if the hit parade is on the radio. Like they don't, they're they're so out of it that they don't really uh, interact with the, the the culture of the time in any meaningful way. That's a great observation, and especially someone like Hackman, who automatically feels like some someone of a different generation. I mean, I think he 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 passed off as middle aged before he was actually middle aged. I mean, there was something about him that just just automatically felt like a, a, a throwback kind of actor, a no-bullshit kind of middle-aged actor, even when he was at the start of his career on something like French Connection. Or in the the film that signaled the American New Wave, which was Bonnie and Clyde, and him showing up as the older brother in that. But yeah, there's that moment that was a great point, Bill, about them kind of missing out on the world that the world has passed them by while one's in prison and the other's on a boat. There's that great scene when Hackman tries to show Pacino the hobo jungle. You know, let's let's go have a hobo breakfast. And they go there and there's nothing there anymore. And it's like, yeah, time has passed these guys by and they don't even seem to realize it. You mentioned that Pauline Kael uh, called him kind of a second-rate Dustin Hoffman, and that's even in the Judith Christ review of this movie. She has to bring that up because Pacino has been blighted as a, quote, second Dustin Hoffman, unquote, in person and in style, except for his young Corleone role in The Godfather. He is more Hoffman-ish than ever here, but that is no denigration. It sounds denigrating to me. It riddled him uh, during his early career. I I mean, because uh, obviously they're... the two of them probably went after a lot of the same roles and they were kind of switching back and forth and who got them and they had the same kind of pinched voice. So, I mean, Paul and Kale was really brutal about it. You see something like Godfather two, especially where Pacino is so dark, it's nothing like Hoffman to me, but uh, there, there was this famous line that Pacino had where uh, a journalist brought up Paul and Kale comparing him to Dustin Hoffman like criticizing one of his performances, saying it was lower rent, that's an Hoffman. And Pacino said something like, you know, was that before or after they removed the shot glass from her throat? Uh, <laughs> which, uh, 
seconds. There was no love lost between Pacino and uh, about the best thing that she ever said about Pacino was in, in her Godfather Three review. She said he gives a very professional performance. Uh, that was <laughs> that was the most glowing she could manage for him. It's just a shame. Did she retire before Carlita's way? Because I can only imagine her head exploding with her darling Brian De Palma and her nemesis. <laughs> Al Pacino she hated, creating she, a movie together. She hated Scarface. I mean, her her review of Scarface says uh, Pacino is uh, he's impotent in the movie. I mean, he's just jumping up and down to no effect. Essentially, is what she's saying. So we haven't talked about John Steinbeck in this discussion at all because we could easily say that this is riffing on Steinbeck, and I could really see that uh, when it comes to this, but it's an interesting twist on Of Mice and Men, where you've got the the little guy, the George character, is the the goofball, the one who needs to be protected, and then the George character is the big guy uh, who is, well, he kind of doesn't know his own strength, kind of like uh, like like Lenny in uh, Of Mice and Men, but it's it's that interesting dynamic of these two guys who need to look out for each other, even though, you know, one is definitely in Of Mice and Men is definitely the caretaker when it comes to that. But at least there's, you know, I, I guess the, <laughs> the, the car wash is the rabbit farm. Um, but, but at least, uh, Gene Hackman doesn't have to shoot Al Pacino in the back of the head by the end of the movie. But it's also that Pacino's character is, he's a little bit more ambiguous than, than, than Lenny and Mice and Men. Like he's, uh, not ambiguous, but maybe is the right word. But the uh, like he's playing a quote unquote simpler character. But it's he, he's we we ne- for a lot of the film we don't really know just how complicated an adult he really is beyond all of the uh, beyond all the the uh, the play acting that he does to uh, to break up Max. So, but yeah, I, I I was aware that there was a lot of uh, of mice and men comparisons. I think there was also Damon Runyon comparisons in the Variety review of Scarecrow. But I I don't know his work well enough to to speak to that. I mean, I see the parallels as very kind of uh, surface and incidental. I, I don't know how uh, – uh, I don't know the word for it. I don't know if he set out to model it over anything like that, Gary Michael White, as a template. Yeah, I've never heard him talk about Steinbeck in relation to this. I've, I know that he's spoken about the um, like meeting a real-life equivalent to the Max character and how that was the um, the starting point of inspiration, but – um, and I know that he said it wasn't to be uh, meant to evoke things like Kerouac, but I don't know that I've ever heard him talk about the Steinbeck. I mean, you should you should definitely bring that up when you talk to him on Friday. I'm very curious what a sequel to Scarecrow would be like because you know Schatzberg's gone on record talking about a sequel to this so that's been you know kind of been kicking around for a while. Um, do they ever get the car wash or is it just like Max taking care of Lion at the mental hospital? I'm very curious where they're going to go from here if they ever do go place places. I I don't know. I don't know that that drifting, uh, that the story of drifters carries the same, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, romance as it does today. But the only application I could see that would be the useful if you are looking at Scarecrow as an extension of the portrait of a, a aimless America, as it was in in seventy three, um, then how, what does that translate to today? Now I don't know what his story is for the Scarecrow, 
but it seems odd that a, a movie, a, a, such an under the radar movie that no one seems to have noticed that he feels the need to return to that. But then again, I, I, the one thing I hate more than anything is when someone says, we don't need this movie. And my reaction is, well, you don't, you don't need any movie. I mean, you, you need food and water, but uh, I mean, you know, a, an artist's job is to show us why we need this movie, <laughs> you know, it, it, by making the movie. So I, I don't subscribe to that, but it does seem like an odd, um, uh, and Hackman's retired and, uh, I, I, it seems like an impossible task to make a sequel to it, but I, I also don't, don't. It's not automatically clear to me how this story of these two men translates to today. There was one interview a few years ago where Schatzberg said that uh, the premise would involve uh, Lyon being a, a computer geek and that Max would be married and would have an adopted Chinese son, which I remember being a very specific detail. I was, I was, all right. Well, that's. That's something I wouldn't have seen in Scarecrow, but uh, but I guess the, the the drama would hinge upon the fact that Line found found out that his son is still alive, and that would kick a new journey in motion. I, I know that he has spoken about not even really necessarily needing those actors, but I feel like Scarecrow, in the minds of most viewers, would be you think Pacino and you, and and Hackman. I mean, they're iconic. You know, it, I don't know who could replace them. Like, who would be appropriate? Uh, surrogates, or, you know, if they can't get the retired hackman or the expensive and busy Pacino, it sounds fucking terrible. But you no, know, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I love Jerry Schatzberg. I, I would be perfectly willing to watch that movie. I'd be fascinated by it. But I, I just, for me, the the movie is the banging of that shoe on the counter. I think that's the whole the whole story that we need to know. Uh, uh, not only of what happened to those characters during the course of that movie, but it's also an indication of where those characters are after the movie ends. And that's the best kind of thing. A movie that feels like it's still going on after it ends. Still has life left. No, you don't necessarily need to make another movie. It, it exists in your mind. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I want to come with you. I give the orders then. ever done it before. What have we done to ourselves? Playing with us. 
playing a game. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of figures in a landscape. Oddly, another tale of two men on a journey of sorts. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jamie and Bill. Bill, what is the latest with you these days, sir? Well, a lot of stuff. I've been very busy. Um, I uh, still have been doing supporting characters, my uh, my podcast. Uh, I have a new episode that just came out with director uh, and head of Blue Underground, Bill Lustig, uh, which you can find at uh, www.nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters. I'm also uh, putting together a new show called From the Neighborhood uh, that's going to be interviews with people that worked on Blue Velvet. Uh, first episode should be out sometime this month. It's going to be an interview with Vernon Harrell, who did props on the movie. Um, Amanda Reyes and I had did the um, audio commentary for Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left for Arrow Video. That should be out now in the UK and comes out July 3rd in the US. Uh, and I also did a little bit of writing for uh, a magazine called Lunch Meat. Um, their, their ninth issue, I did some reviews for that. And uh, you can find that at uh, lunchmeatvhs.com. And Jamie, what's the haps with you? That DVD commentary sounds really exciting. That's so cool. About the biggest thing that happened to the show lately, uh, Movie Geeks United, we got our hands on um, a two-hour interview with Stanley Kubrick that had never been heard uh, from 1987. Uh, because I, I interviewed the guy from Rolling Stone who interviewed him during the Full Metal Jacket press tour. It wasn't really a tour. They all came to him. But uh, I said, would you happen to still have those tapes? And he said, oh, I might have them somewhere. I said, would you look for them for me? And he, he looked and he, he found them and uh, he, he mailed them to me. And I, I listened to them and I caught chills. Because I was like, you know, outside of the interviewer and Kubrick, I am probably the only one who's heard these tapes and it felt sacred. And so I, I, I digitized them and I released them as part of our podcast. And it is an uninterrupted two hour conversation with Stanley Kubrick. It was just like amazing to, to hear the tapes and to share them with people. So that's a big thing that's currently available um, at the Kubrick series.com and at moviegeeksunited.net. And outside of that, we just, we keep talking movies every week, and we occasionally have some special series, and um, and yeah, everything's going good. And I got a one of my favorite movies is actually a, a really terrible movie. It's it's Cobra with Sylvester Stallone. Speaking of DVDs, they want to use one of my interviews with the movie cinematographer for their 4K Blu-ray that they're about to come out with. So I was thrilled to be a, thrilled to be associated in any way with Cobra. I, I will every time I'm in the store i will look at that box with great pride let's get together and have some pizza and i'll bring the scissors i love cobra i i just i love cobra because i watch it and i think to myself this is an example of like ego run amok still stallone and and uh cosmatis who no one likes like everyone on the crew calls him george comatos it, it just has so many great stories attached to it so i'm glad to be associated with it in some way well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You can also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. 
I did want to say thank you to all the folks that have turned out and given iTunes reviews. Those are very, very important. So I appreciate those recent reviews. And over at iTunes, you can also make sure to get Sporting Characters and get Movie Geeks United and get the new one from Bill, which sounds absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to hear the new one about Blue Velvet. What's the name of that one again? From the Neighborhood? Mm-hmm. From the neighborhood. That is great. I love, yeah, nice uh, reference to to that line there. That's fantastic. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.